Hello and welcome back to Final Games. This is episode number 11 and I am back after a short week break, which I do apologize for. Moving house is always incredibly not fun and gets in the way of doing lovely things like this show. But we are back and I am bringing your scheduled viewing broadcast for the week. And today I have a fantastic guest for you. A writer who, like previous guests of the show, got his start at the British game magazine Edge. Whereas a writer, he progressed to become the magazine's features editor. After a stint as the features editor, he decided to follow his own path and become a freelancer. Since going freelance, he has written for multiple publications, including The Guardian, IGN, PC Gamer, but you might know him best for his work at Eurogamer, his, and I quote, favorite gaming site, where he has written some fantastic articles and reviews over the year. Some of his most recent articles for the site include a look back at the 20 years of Resident Evil, an incredible stretch of articles on the Metal Gear series, and a deep look into the history of Platinum Games. But even with all the previews, reviews, and in-depth articles he does on a weekly basis, he's still somehow found the time to write a book. A Brief History of Video Games is a look into how the cultural, creativity, and technological aspects of the video game industry have changed since Pong in 1960 to the modern games of today. He's one of Britain's most respected video game writers and a self-proclaimed Terran for life, but more on that later. He's the man and machine that is Mr. Richard Stanton. Hello, Rich. <laughs> Hello. How are I feel you a bit today? After that. <laughs> I'm not bad. I'm not bad at all. How, How are you? I am good, thank you. I'm I'm actually quite sweaty. It's very warm here in Japan today. It's been a very humid day, although it's been raining. <laughs> but it's it's almost ten to ten here in the night, and it's still really warm. So I'm a bit clammy. How how is it where you are in the wonderful world? Uh, it's okay. It's quite sunny, but it's quite windy. But um, what's on my mind at the moment is that. Uh, the book starts before Pong because um, I place uh, the start of video games with uh, Willie Higginbottom and Tennis for Two because um, I think he's an amazing character. Uh, some people don't include that because of the technology it's made on. Um, it's not a computer, it's an oscilloscope. Okay. Uh, but the, there's, there's even earlier stuff that you could plausibly say is the first video game um, before Tennis for Two. There's, I mean, there's a patent um, that exists for a video game that was never made much earlier than that. But anyway, anyway, Pong <laughs> comes along. Um, Pong comes along a bit later, and a lot of people also confuse Pong with um, Tennis for Two and um, Tennis on the Magnavox Odyssey. Um, okay. Which are both really, really different games. The the Magnavox Odyssey one really looks like Pong, but you can put uh, Swerve on the ball after you've hit it. Imagine how weird that is. So you, you hit the ball like Pong, it hits your bat, and then when it's going towards your opponent, the, the Odyssey has these weird controllers that are like stand-up. Um, so you hold it a bit like a walkie-talkie and you rotate a dial a dial on the side. Yeah. And by rotating that dial, you can make the ball kind of swerve off in mad directions. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because if you're playing against someone else who knows what they're doing, it makes it, you know, a little game of bluff and double bluff and uh, the speed can get quite intense. Almost the it's, first it's... competitive skilled game then because Pong isn't really skillful. I mean, it could be. Well, but well that's a lot, it, is it sounds when... a lot more skillful. It is when it speeds up. I, the the big innovation with Pong is that um, Al Alcorn, 
split the bat into, I think it's eight segments. And depending on which one of those segments the ball hits, that affects the angle it comes back at. Okay. And um, in tennis on the Odyssey, it's much, much simpler. Um, so with with Pong, there there is really a genuine skill element there. And uh, I don't, have you ever played a Pong machine? I have it's, not it's still played pretty a Pong good. machine. I have not. You know, it's it's one of these um it's one of these arcade games that I mean I I, I have a I have a real thing for arcade games, and I try to play as many of them as I can. Whenever I go anywhere, I always look for the arcade to see if they've got any machines I've yeah. never played before. Um. And I did uh, find a Pong machine in Las Vegas, believe it or not, <laughs> when, when I was in Las Vegas. And I found an original Donkey Kong machine in Las Vegas as well, okay. which had obviously just been installed in 1980 and never moved. And um, Pong is like still very enjoyable. Like, it's, it's, there, there are some old arcade games that don't really, you know, they didn't survive their era yeah. in a way. Um, but there are some that still really work and you can see still being successful in a social set setting because of course pong the the brilliance of pong and i realize i'm going on a little bit here but um <laughs> bushnell and um bushnell and ted dabney had worked before pong on a game called computer space which was uh based on a game called space war that was built for the pdp1 computer um and they thought well this game is fantastic all of our computer nerd friends love it so we're going to make an arcade machine of Space War. And they did it. But Space War was too complex. And nobody, no punters got it. So the, the machine was a, a failure. I mean, it wasn't a failure for them because they got paid for it anyway. But people didn't put money in because people had never seen a video game before. Yeah. And this first video game that was being put in front of them had, like, gravity. You had to steer the ship. You had the bullet. And, you know... This is all relatively simple stuff to you and me sitting here in 2016. But imagine it's the first video game you see and, like, it's it's hard to grasp, you know? Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with Space War? I'm so not, you thrust... no. Okay, so it's got a gravity well at the center of the screen, a star, and that yeah. pulls the ships in. And um, you rotate the ship and you thrust it to make it move. So, you know, it's like... I hesitate to call it a complex control scheme. But if it's the first time you've ever <laughs> seen a video game of any description, you can see how that's not going to pull people in. It's yeah. a bit too complex. So, of course, famously with Pong, it had one line of instructions, which was avoid missing ball for high score. And, you know, the controls are much simpler because you're just moving a bat up and down. Um, and the fact it was, you know, a game that's instantly understandable and fun in bars where you want, you know, you're probably there having a drink with your mate. Yeah. You know, it was it was brilliantly targeted, Pong, in a way that, you know, we mentioned Pong and we don't actually think about it as a commercial product at the time. And that was that was Bushnell's talent, really, if you like. He was amazing at selling games up to a point. He loses that in the <laughs> late 70s. Well, it's amazing to think, really, all these people who complain about games being dumbed down for core audiences. <laughs> now, video games, it sounds like, started out being dumbed down for core audiences, and that's how they got started. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not really a fan of the, the idea of dumbing down. Um, not, not because I, you know, 
that that is a thing that can happen but i yeah. often think it's something people say in the place of actual criticism um okay i don't think there's i don't think there's anything wrong with um games being accessible i'm quite a big fan of games being made accessible yeah. um so as many people can enjoy them as possible and it it's very easy to do this and maintain that level of depth and skill um and like a great example for this is Platinum. You mentioned Platinum and yeah. like um, someone like Hideki Kamiya is one of the greatest action game directors of all time. Amazing at making games with these very complex, deep combat systems that take an incredible amount of time and skill to master. But Kamiya in all of his recent games, certainly, not, not necessarily his earlier Capcom ones, but Bayonetta had, um, uh, he called it a mode your mother could play. <laughs> um, where it, it makes it easier and it makes the combos much easier to pull off yeah. so that somebody who just wants to play through that game and have a fun 10-hour experience and feel awesome while doing it can do it. Yeah. And, like, did Bayonetta suffer for that? No. No. It, it didn't suffer in the slightest. Um, I still, to this day, haven't defeated Rodin at the end of Bayonetta because he is incredibly <laughs> difficult. Well, yeah, you do have to, like, get a million halos to even find them, though, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it was that, an that, arduous That was time. harder than beating, <laughs> I found. Because I, I ran through Bayonetta twice, and then I found out, you know, oh, you can fight Rodin if you get... I think it's... Is it a million or is it 10 million halos? I'm and not sure, because... So I just started grinding halos, and it was like, oh, it took me days and days and days. <laughs> it, was, it was a great fight, though. I, 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 me and a friend tried to do it while we were in university when we were playing Ben and we just couldn't do it just couldn't do it I don't know why I don't know if I'd go back and defeat him or if my friend has gone back and defeat him but at that time yeah fucking Rodan oh, was a he was a difficult is. pain but there See, you go I'm, I'm, feel, is... I'm feeling bad about it now because <laughs> you know spoiler alert it's not on the list and maybe it should be <laughs> well yeah <laughs> well there you go that's a good example of a game that goes from relatively naught to 60 and you choose at the pace you want to drive through that experience you know you can start very slowly and go through the easy modes and then there is no harm bumping up the difficulty for people who are experienced gamers who want to a challenge and then learning that incredible combat that bayonetta has and how technical it can be and then trying challenges like against rodin so mm. that's a good example of that yeah, they did a much better job of the challenges in the sequel, I have yes. to say. That, that is one of the very few flaws of Bayonetta, is that it doesn't have, um, after you've reached that, that level of mastery, which obviously we all have, um, you, your only option really is to play through the game, the game again and again. And yeah. It doesn't have like an arena mode or something with no. Bayonetta 2 fixed. Yeah, it had the uh, challenge rooms that you could go in through, like secret areas and that kind of thing. Which oh, the like... Alfheim portals, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. Well, anyway, moving on from that and my terrible mistake mm. in terms to your book, let's talk about you for a minute then before <laughs> we go on to your games. Yeah. I want to know how you got started at Edge because many of my guests have got their start at Edge and are now very well-respected writers like yourself. How did you start at Edge then? What was your experience uh, in being hired for Edge? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of um, a little bit useless in these situations because people... Uh, People do ask, um, not not in terms of specifically Edge, but how do you get into the industry? You know, yeah. how did you start as a journalist? And um, I applied for a job. I mean, that that's it. Uh, <laughs> I uh, before Edge, I was living in the Lake District, and um, 
uh, I'll probably actually talk a bit more in depth about this when we move on to one of the games because it was quite important for why I decided to um, try and move into the games industry. Um, okay. Basically, I'd left my previous job and I was just looking for a job. Um, and uh, I had a couple of months to do it, so I wasn't in any particular rush. And uh, I'd always been a fan of Edge. Um, that was the one game magazine I kept on buying when I grew up, basically. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, I was obsessed with games magazines, you know. And obviously, I was a kid in a kind of pre-internet era. Yeah. Or, well, the internet existed, but we didn't have it. <laughs> <The> mainstream <laughs> society didn't have it. Um, and as I, as I grew older... Um, the first time I saw Edge, uh, I would have been 14 or 15. And it really blew my mind because I know that um, a lot of people have a lot of fondness for, you know, your Sinclair Zap. Uh, those kind of very personality-led magazines, CVG, of the late 80s, early 90s. Um, yeah. And, you know, I loved all those things as well. Um, but when I first saw Edge... It blew me away that it took games seriously. Um, and even that, it sounds a bit lame to be saying that in 2016, but you really have to understand the context of the mid-90s, basically, where um, I don't think the PlayStation was even out at the time. Um, I think uh, they were <laughs> they were hyping up the 3DO, as I recall, in the early <laughs> issues. Um, and it was, it, was just the, it was just the idea that, um, you know, this was... An adult magazine that kind of um, oh that sounds a bit saucy, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It was attractive. it was a mature magazine. For yeah, times. yeah. So um, anyway, uh, I obviously went off and lived my life. Um, and Edge was the one games magazine I kept on buying. Um, and occasionally I would buy Arcade, um, even Games TM. Uh, occasionally, if I liked the cover, but I always bought Edge. Um, and. Uh, I saw a job um, for Edge. It was a staff writer. I <clears throat> I applied for it and uh, got an interview. And um, it was a bit odd because I wrote a lot, but I wasn't a journalist. Um, I wrote lectures. Uh, I presented events. Um, we, obviously, I had to write a script for it. Um, I wrote academic articles. Um, and you know newsletter articles sometimes in the local newspaper that kind of thing okay i really wasn't a, a professional writer yeah um, so it was a bit of a leap in the dark uh but i got an interview i went down for the interview it was with um the then editor of the magazine was margaret robertson and uh i can't i can't really remember much about the interview um beyond talking quite a bit about Super Mario Brothers uh, and its, uh, <laughs> its influence on subsequent platformer design and uh, I think Okami as well because I'd just been playing Okami. Anyway, uh, it obviously went well because um, I got offered the job uh, alongside my friend Martin Davies who'd also applied for the job and he's just gone to work for Mojang in Sweden but he and I started on edge on the same day as staff writers um, and uh, yeah that was that was how I ended up there fantastic so then you progressed on to become the features editor for the yeah. magazine um, 
but then you decided to go freelance. So mm. can you tell me a bit about that decision? Because freelance is one of those things a lot of people see and a lot of people state now. There's a lot of people who are like, I'm a freelance writer, but they're not. But yeah. <laughs> you decided to, you know, shift away from, I, I guess, a financially stable job into the unknown what was it well, a creative decision or was stable. it <laughs> <laughs> everything's relative isn't it yeah well um, that's the thing was it a financial decision or was it like a creative decision i want to expand my repertoire for writing for different publications well um i mean edge edge was an amazing place to be for um i i was i think i was there for three years or just under three years maybe um and at the start, it was a relatively new team because uh, myself, Martin, and um, Alex Wiltshire, who would later go on to become the editor, we all started at pretty much the same time. Um, so it was like, it was exciting. Um, okay. And obviously, you were moving into this environment surrounded by... Um, smart people talking about games all the time and I'd always been into games in a big way I'd always been thinking about them in these ways but yeah. I'd you know I'd, I'd never been in that kind of scenario before so it, it was just tremendously exciting and obviously I was kind of learning to become a different kind of writer as well um, which I really enjoyed um, and you were going on all these trips uh to see studios whose games you'd been playing for years and you know because you're from edge they just assume you know what you're talking about and, <laughs> um, it, it was fantastic for a long long time um and uh what happened really was that um martin uh left to go freelance before i did uh martin went freelance about a year before i did okay and um alex at the time future was trying to launch edge online which is sadly now defunct um but this was i mean this would have been seven or eight years ago this was a period where future were giving it a big push so alex was doing the website martin had left and there was me um and the editor-in-chief and uh yeah my last six months on edge i ended up having a ton of responsibility thrown on me and uh future weren't hiring you know the replacements uh quick enough and i ended up just driving myself into the ground basically uh wow. so it was you know it's like i i wouldn't blame anyone specifically for that it was just that was the situation that was what ended up happening and i really um uh, it, it was like a developer's crunch time i guess except permanently because you have um <laughs> when you're producing a magazine a magazine operates on it's not a four week cycle but it's more like three and a half weeks ish three and a half to four weeks and how that normally works is that you have two or three weeks at the start where you're doing the research and you're assembling stuff together and you're playing games so yeah. you know what you're doing for the magazine and then in the last week and a half the last two weeks you know, you're getting all the articles in, you're writing your own articles, everything's being edited, everything's being put together. So it's a more intense period. And, you know, at the end, that intense period was just all the time for me. Um, so I, I just, I just, you know, got burned out. And um, But I wasn't burned out on games, you know. I was just uh, bummed out by the situation, I guess. Uh, and uh, 
Martin seemed to be doing all right. So, I, I mean, it may, <laughs> I'm making it sound like Martin's my hero here. <laughs> I fo- so I followed Martin. Um, <laughs> he yeah, led so, me the path. <laughs> yeah, and, and this, this kind of makes me seem like a, a bad or at least foolish person. But um, I, I didn't think about the decision that much. Um, I, I felt it was time to move on. Um, so how I long had you been at Edge at that point? About three years. I think it's okay. I think it's like two years, nine months, something like that. Yeah. Um so I I didn't really um I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought I'll go freelance. I didn't worry about whether it'd work or not, um, which maybe I should have. Um <laughs> but uh yeah, I I I just did it and it seemed to work. It it <laughs> seems to have worked. So what year what year did you go freelance then? It must have been uh, 2009, 10, something like well, that. Well, you know, it's 2016 sorry, I sh- I now. That's yeah, a good I, seven I years. So, sorry, I should have swatted up on my own life here. <laughs> well, no, it just proves that, you know, seven years of freelancing, it's obviously mm. worked out. And do you find yourself burning yourself out as a freelancer in comparison to like then? Is there some days where you're like, no. I wish I was on a magazine and the pressure's off? Or Oh, I, I, there are things I definitely miss about the magazine um there's making a magazine is fantastic and it's it's sad that that industry in a wider sense is dying um because i i love that job um and when you make a magazine you're part of a small team um so on edge at any given time we would have between six and eight people including editorial and art yeah and um it's a fantastic feeling when you finish an issue and then a week later the palette arrives with copies of the magazine and you know i still remember the first issue i worked on when it came back and margaret came over to me with a copy of it and said you made a magazine um congratulations <laughs> and it was like it was like wow you know um and i i, re- I really miss that side of um working on a magazine or a website like being part of a team that's the only thing about being freelance like i am i guess quite an independent spirit you know i um but you know being part of a team is also awesome um yeah. and in terms of uh i i kind of i've kind of lost track of the original question here um banging on about that <laughs> well it was just a comparison to sort of how much work you take on freelance <laughs> in comparison to the work you were yeah, given sure. on a magazine and it seems like with freelance uh, i imagine someone like yourself obviously not maybe some more inexperienced freelancers or more unknown freelancers but someone like yourself who has been around for you know three, seven years doing freelance who has written some incredible articles and very consistent reviews and is always wanted by Eurogamer, IGN, Guardian, that kind of thing. Do you get to be like sort of picky and choosy with your work or do you have to take on everything that comes towards you? Uh, it's, it kind of depends. I mean, a lot of a freelancer's work isn't really offered to you. You know, you, you do have to pitch even even for reviews and stuff. It's more a question of making sure they know you want to do it um yeah. i mean something like dark souls might be an exception where 
like my work for Dark Souls is relatively well known. You are so the expert. I did, <laughs> so I did. I I wouldn't say that, but uh, I, you know, in that case, I did get a couple of places coming to me going, "Will you do Dark Souls three for us?" But in the vast majority of cases, you have to chase down the work yourself. Um, I I have a much nicer life work balance now. Um, and it, it's it's a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a trade off, you know. Uh, freelancing really doesn't pay very well, um, but it pays okay. And uh, I live with my partner. We've got a little girl, and she works two and a half days a week, and I work, I'd say, probably four or five really. <laughs> <laughs> and. I don't kill myself, you know. I'm yeah. I'm not um I'm not grinding in that way I was for a short period, and I I I really just find that I don't know. I I really enjoy it to be honest. I I I enjoy I enjoy playing a game and trying to work out why I like it, um or why I dislike it. It's one of those things where it's very it's very very easy to say that game's good, that game's not. This is, you know how much I enjoyed that but when you actually try to be specific about it when you try to explain why I mean I don't know why um, Bayonetta might be superior to Heavenly Sword or DMC or something um, it's actually quite difficult um, yeah. and you, you might know innately that what you're saying is true but you don't know why you feel it and that that experience of um trying to codify your own thoughts i really enjoy you know it's it's like um you know because you don't have the article in your head before you write it you you have a vague idea of what you're going to do but yeah quite often you end up surprising yourself and i've i've certainly had it where i mean i don't make a habit of reading my old work i have to say but um Every so often you come across an old piece and sometimes you don't remember writing them <laughs> or you don't remember uh, certain bits of them and yeah. you think, oh, you know, that wasn't so bad actually. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I, I, like, I like the experience of the job itself. I, I really, really like writing. I guess that's <laughs> the only way I can fit it. Fair enough. Well, speaking of games and, you know, uh, dissecting games in terms of why you like them, hopefully you're going to be able to articulate why you've chosen the eight games you've chosen. I hope so too. For your advice today. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to have an incredible lot of dead air. But as someone who over the years has written some incredible reviews, I am extremely interested in your list today. As we both have spoken about the games we similarly like, so I'm very interested in your choices. So mm. we're going to jump straight into it and we're going to go to your first game. So let's listen to some music.
Okay, Rich. So the first game on your list today uh, of your eight is developed by Intelligent Systems, creators of the Fire Emblem series, in conjunction with Nintendo's SPD department. It was originally released in Japan on December 2nd, 2006, and it was released in Europe a month later. It's the fifth game in the WarioWare series, a line of quirky party games for the Wii, where you use the Wii remote in a variety of different ways, and it received really good reviews on release. It's WarioWare Smooth Moves. Yeah, uh, amazing game. Um, and it's kind of here uh, as a representative of something wider from Nintendo because um, obviously when you have to choose eight games, you know you end up making a massive list and then you have to cut it down and be quite brutal. And um, I think this is the only Nintendo game I've, I've got today uh, which doesn't really reflect how I feel about Nintendo. You know, I think Nintendo are the greatest. Um, but WarioWare smooth moves um i'd i'd played the earlier warrior wares i had it on gba i had it on gamecube um and the wii came out i think it was a launch title for the wii i'm it was, or, in, or it was came, in the launch it was in the launch window yeah it, it, yeah it came out like a month after the console or something yeah um and i i just got the wii i had wii sports and twilight princess and um i was having an amazing time with them and i went out and bought warrior smooth moves and warrior for me represents something that is very obvious about nintendo to any nintendo fan but i don't think they really get enough credit for it in the wider in, in the wider industry still which is just how inventive they are yeah um they're a very creative company and um there's also something there which is uh it's it's hard to define but nintendo enjoy put, enjoys putting things in its games that um delight people um a sense of discovery and part of the charm of warioware is finding out what they're going to do next um and how they mix up uh old nintendo games how they mix up what you're being expected to do and do it all through this very very simple interface or it was until smooth moves um so when you go back to the gba warioware for example um you literally you literally use one button yeah you know it's um and uh it was you know, a, it was a bit could... more it was a bit more like rhythm heaven style where it was a bit more mm. on the beat mm. rhythm kind of game it wasn't quite like warioware's yeah. quirkiness and Smooth moves kind of went the opposite way. Um, and the reason I continue to think it's one of the best games Nintendo's ever made is I actually think it might be an even better proof of concept than Wii Sports for the Wii. I mean, Wii Sports is perfect. Wii Sports is probably the greatest launch game in history. Yeah. But WarioWare Smooth Moves went out of its way to find as many possible uses for the remote as it could. And a lot of these involved where you were holding it. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd hold it at your nose, you'd hold it at your hip, you'd hold it out in front of you, uh, put it on top of your head. Um, there's obviously the standard position. Um, and it would it would build games around these and around the motion. And there is more in WarioWare in terms of creative ways of using the Wiimote than in any other game ever released for the Wii. And this is always what amazed me about it because it was so early in the Wii's life cycle. And the Wii never really delivered on that promise 
um, by the end of its life. Not that this was Nintendo's fault, because Nintendo's games did. But third parties didn't really know how to use the Wiimote. They, they made their games and they added a bit of waggle or something in it. I, I, there are exceptions, like I'd say Zack and Wiki is a good example of a company that thought about how to use that interface. But WarioWare has so much going on, um, not only in terms of the minigames, so the basic structure for WarioWare, which I'm sure everyone knows, is you play uh, 10, 10 minigames really quickly in a yeah. row, and you have it's three like a, lives. It's a quick succession of challenges where you have to put the uh, the Wii remote in uh, a various position, and they all have funny names. Like the one I remember the most is where you have to hold it against your nose, and it's called the elephant. And yeah, yeah. they all have quirky names, and you you get like five seconds to quickly put the Wii remote in front of you in a different position, and then all of a sudden, bang! There's like this game mm. that you have to just figure out what you're meant to do, and it doesn't tell you what you're meant to do. You are meant to just like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Rocket. I think that's what's so clever about Wario, uh, about smooth moves is it'd be like it'd be like a nose with hair and mm. you instantly know I have to get the hair <laughs> I have to get the hair and it is it's I forget what the word is for like visual aids instantly telling your brain what to do but it was so clever in a short yeah, space prompting. of time being able yeah prompting you to uh-huh. know what you're meant to do and it's um, very but clever really. The yep. brilliant thing about Smooth Moves is that it has this side of it, which is the um, instantaneous five-second game bites, if yeah. you like, um, which WarioWare has always had. And it had those with um, even more kind of control creativity. But then, but then, um, so the game takes place on, it's got a little map, um, and each stage is represented by a little character. So when you go for 9-volt, you do Nintendo games, etc., but they also um, went through these mini-games they have in WarioWare. Uh, there's one called Pyoro, which is a shooter. Um, there's <laughs> another one, which is like a Tetris block-balancing game. Yeah. Uh, there's one called Star Nose, which is about racing two noses as spaceships. And there is Tower Tennis, which might be one of the best games Nintendo's ever made. And I'm, I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. And these games... Um, are very traditional styles of video game that have been remade for the Wiimote um, and Tower Tennis, which is just incredible. Um, you control uh, a ping pong bat. Uh, have you played Tower Tennis? Do I you have, remember yes. it? Yeah, I do. Right. So you're you're controlling a little hand, disembodied hand with a ping pong bat, yep. and you're bouncing a ball up and down, and the screen's scrolling upwards through a tower, and obviously obstacles come at you. And what you've got to do is bounce the ball off bricks like in Breakout yep. um, to get through. And so it's got this kind of classic game design principle of, you know, bounce the ball, don't let the ball fall. But then the fact of the Wii moat gives you a level of dexterity in that environment you'd never never had before to the extent that when you get really high in that game you actually have to end up tilting the bat to get it through gaps so the gap the the bat is physical um within the tower and you can't just move it past the obstacles like you can knock the ball past them but you've actually got to twist the bat which becomes a fucking nightmare but it's (laughs) it's 
it was, it's just incredible. I must have played Tower Tennis more than anything else in the Wii. Pyoro S um, used the Wii held in a relatively straightforward fashion to control a kind of traditional uh, shooter, uh, 2D top-down scrolling shooter. Um, and it was absolutely brutal because you had one life and he could take one shot. And that was it. And it was like, it was the most arcade-like experience um, I'd had since the arcades um, yeah. being delivered as part of a Wii launch title. Star Nose, amazing two-player game. Um, and it had one with two jogging brothers where you and a mate had to hold the Wiimote in the nunchuck and you had to jump together. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I, I can't remember what it's called. Um but anyway, these, all of this stuff together just made Smooth Moves the game that made me most excited for the Wii because um, I obviously had Wii Sports. We played Wii Sports all the time. Yeah. But Smooth Moves was the game that made me think, wow, imagine what's going to be happening on this thing in a year or two. And it never did. You know, like that, I, I still think Smooth Moves is the game that shows the promise of the Wii better than any other just in terms of where it could have gone. And um, I, always, I always remember it ends with a dance. Like the, the last game in it, um, mini game in it, is uh, this kind of techno dance thing with four or five Wario's and you have to hold the remote at your waist. And you really have to... It's really good at judging whether you're doing the dance well or not. Um, <laughs> and... I'd never had a game that had, um, I have to be careful about how I say this. I'd never had a game that had moved me so much physically. Physically? You know, um, okay. Yeah. It was um, like, I'm, I'm not saying why it was an emotional experience for me at yeah. all. It was, it was just fantastic. But um, you're constantly having to get out of your seat. You're constantly having to adjust how you're holding the remote. And then at the end, you kind of see it out with the dance. And yeah. this to me just seemed like, the future of video games it really did um it had a creativity with that interface that i don't think any other game afterwards including nintendo's managed to live up to um i think all of the ideas for the wii are in warioware smooth moves basically um and uh it you said it got positively reviewed but actually it's one of the more maligned entries in the series which i've i've never been able to fathom because I, for me I, it's by far the best I've seen, in the series and from what i remember it was sitting around at the, to use number scores but around an 8 it was it was showing promise but i think it was, should have been a 10 but it was overshadowed <laughs> by like you say the Wii sports it was it mm. was overshadowed at the time by Wii sports other games at the time were pretty bad we i remember getting the wii i remember getting warrior West smooth moves i remember getting twilight princess which was reviewed okay um but there was mm. games like red steel which didn't work out very well or yeah. games uh like tony hawk's downhill jam which was absolutely appalling and all you did I, was I shake think, the controller to jump and that kind of thing yeah i think there's a wider thing about warrior as well which is um because it is mini games i think people are automatically a little bit more dismissive than they should be of it yeah obviously anyone who's played warioware and who loves warioware knows what i'm talking about yeah, but i absolutely. think in terms of like it's not thought of as one of nintendo's big hitting titles um which is completely unfair i, I think it, it is because it's the one title where nintendo just lets their employees kind of run wild and do whatever they can mm -hmm. um 
within this crazy context where they can reuse Nintendo properties, mix them up. I mean, I think stuff like NES Remix just comes out of, you know, WarioWare directly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I still think back to the Wii and I can't remember being as thrilled by a console as I was by the Wii. Um, because it was one of those things where you'd kind of seen it and you knew it was coming and you were like, this is going to be great. Yeah. And then when you actually got it home and realized it did work, like they said it did, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd never experienced anything like it. Um, and WarioWare was the title that made me think the future was golden for Nintendo. And it never, it never quite worked out that way. I think, you know, it's quite sad, really, what happened to the Wii in terms of software, because um, it it did drop off quite badly, and I I don't think that was necessarily Nintendo's fault. Um, I think a lot of people made a lot of games for it that probably were never going to sell, and you know, a lot of third parties just made the games that they were already making, but a bit shitter for the yeah. Wii with added waggle, yeah. and then they were like, Wii doesn't sell, and it's like, well. You know, all those people who've bought a Wii, you know, don't, don't want to play want... your games because you're yeah, they shit. they don't want traditional games by definition. Yeah, um, and you saw when um, weird games were successful in the Wii, like the carnival games. Remember that? Yeah, I do. I it's, remember the box you know, art. The box art was yeah. actually fucking awful, but yeah, and it was like, but it, it was quite an inoffensive game. But it was one of those ones that got an absolute kicking by professionals. Um, you know, we all gave it two out of ten, three out of ten. <laughs> and it, it truthfully was not that. You know, truthfully, it was a very simple, functional minigame collection with the carnival theme. Yeah. And people went crazy for it. And another one is Just Dance, you know, which has become one of Ubisoft's big series now across different platforms. But that started on the Wii. Um, and that you that kind of used the same technology that the WarioWare Dance minigame had, which is where you hold mm. the the Wii remote next to your hips and you sort of like it can tell how well you're doing or in which motions you're yeah. going which is really impressive for the time yeah I mean obviously it's kind of smoke and mirrors in a sense but yeah. um, you know it makes you realize that you don't need to connect to get people moving you know it's kind of you can create a very effective illusion or at least WarioWare and Just Dance did um, but anyway it's yeah. all history now <laughs> <laughs> well you say history but I was going to say my m most of my experience with WarioWare came well not WarioWare but Smooth Moves specifically came from multiplayer and mm. although I went through the single player and it was great and the minigames were so creative and they're so fun I absolutely adore the multiplayer and I think anyone who has not played Smooth Moves and still has a Wii and you are able to get hold of it if you're looking for a game that you can play alongside your Mario Kart your Smash and all those kind of party games where you have people come together if anyone does do that these days mm. Smooth Moves has one of the most amazing multiplayer modes where you, you have basically four people and they're all standing up because they have to move really quickly and then in between you is one Wii remote and you all take turns yeah. and you ha you're all like hanging on balloons and uh, <laughs> you have to... Oh man, the balloon fight. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievably good. Yes, and you have to basically all pass the Wii remote around really quickly, do your mini game, try and do it and you're all... And it's such a frantic mess of creativity yeah. and people getting excited and people like frantically moving their bodies and just it's it's fantastic and honestly yeah. one of the best multiplayer experiences i had personally on the wii as well 
Yeah, and also worth mentioning that when it does split screen, it's just one Wiimote and one nunchuck. Yeah. Um, really shows you how accurate the nunchuck's uh, gyroscope is, actually. Yes. Because most games use it disastrously, but in Star Nose, it seems every bit as good as the Wiimote. Um, also, just on Balloon Fight, uh, here's an interesting little nugget for you. Uh, Satoru Iwata helped to code that in WarioWare Smooth Moves because he, he famously designed. was... Yeah, uh, yeah, the original designer of Balloon Fight, and when they um, when they decided to put uh, so just for anyone who doesn't know, the Balloon Fight and WarioWare Smooth Moves is viewed from behind Balloon Man. I don't know what his name is, Mister Balloon. Um, <laughs> is viewed from behind him rather than side on, and you flap your arms up and down <laughs> to fly with the balloons. And uh, apparently, the WarioWare coders were having some difficulty recreating the kind of slightly jerky motion yeah. of balloon fight because they wanted to recreate that um so they went to uh they went to mr Owata and uh he just did it for them <laughs> so, what, it's just one of those know. stories about that, yeah it was a story from endgamer so it may it may not be a hundred percent accurate uh i wasn't there so it I sounds in tune with uh iwata's character that we yeah. all know especially over the past year where stories come have come out of nintendo telling us about all the things he did do that we didn't really know about so it does sound in tune with his character and that is kind of a lovely story well that's great <laughs> so we're going to move on to your next game now and it is mm. a complete tonal shift from warrior and the happy craziness that that game provides and it's actually a game that featured in gav murphy's list from ign last week so if anyone listened to that you might already know what we're going to talk about so let's listen to some music and go straight into it So, Rich, before we move on to your next game, mm-hmm. uh, we have the deserted island question. So, I don't uh, know yeah. if you're familiar with this question. I I, I recall it, yes, but Fantastic. I think you'd better. I'll I'll explain for the benefit <laughs> of the listeners. You'd better. <laughs> so, the deserted island question is a, a kind of it. Well, I keep saying new format every week, but as we progressively move on through the episodes, it's now just the standard normal format. But it's a question where I asked my guest, Mr. Richard Stanton, if he could be trapped, like the show says, deserted place with eight games, what place from gaming would he choose? So Gav Murphy from IGN last week chose the place where Viva Piñata takes place, which is a very interesting (laughs) choice. And we've had previous guests of the show. We had Danny O'Dwyer from GameSpot. He chose the Island of the Witness. We had... um, Mr. Keith Stewart from The Guardian, he chose Proteus. 
So all these kind of lovely, cuddly places almost to stay safe. Yeah. What Holly's would you choose? Family, so I can't choose that one. Yes, Holly did choose the uh, basically Japan, like a stylized Japan from Okami. Um, what would you choose yourself? I can't. I can't imagine you choosing a cuddly place or anywhere such as. Oh, the I witness. don't know. I mean, in terms of um, in terms of a place that really feels to me like a world, I'd probably go with like Earthbound. <laughs> so I on mean, it, uh, on it. Yeah, well, it, on it's the first town, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, on it is the first town. Two Sun. Yeah. Um. But as you progressively move on from on it, things get worse. So yeah. you, would have to, you would have to deal with that. You'd have to deal with Starman and all that but kind I, of stuff. I quite, I quite like the idea of, you know, one of, one of the things I always enjoyed about Earthbound is the sense that, um, you know, you can go home to your mum and your dad calls you and your sister's working in the delivery office. Like it's, yeah. you know, you, you don't, Nest doesn't just have a family. Like a lot of RPG protagonists have a family. But he it has, feels like he's a family, um, and he has a home. He always has a place yeah. where he can go back to. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. Like, and it's a funny world, but it was also something. Um, it was a game I played when I was fourteen or fifteen, and yeah. it was one of the first ones that I felt was about the world I lived in. You know, like every RPG yeah. I played up until that point was, you know, high fantasy or. Yeah. Science fiction or something. Not that there's anything, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with those, but like Earthbound was the first game I really played that, um, and you know, obviously Earthbound is targeted at young men, basically. Yeah. Um, People leaving home, growing up. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a story about a boy growing growing up. up. Yeah. And I played it as a boy growing up. And um, so I, I feel very close to Ness, and I feel very close to particularly the early areas of that game when I was first discovering how it worked and, um, you know, searching every corner. What I really love about Earthbound and um, other games find it very hard to do this is that every character in that world is interesting to talk to, um, which I think is why I'd probably like to live there. Um, Most RPGs, uh, the kind of peripheral characters, you can't really be bothered to talk to them. Um, I mean, you might do it out of a sense of duty, but they don't really say interesting stuff. Whereas in Earthbound, I would go out of my way anywhere to talk to everyone um, just to see what they said. And it wasn't like it was useful in a game sense. You know, they weren't giving me quests or items. It was world building because yeah, the characters you could, life advice <laughs> yeah it was because uh, it's actually funny you bring this up because i am actually playing through earthbound on the 3ds right oh, now right. it is the game i'm playing in build up to when i play dark souls 3 which comes out in a few weeks i played um, through it last year when mr Iwata died i i kind of because he was uh a programmer who came yeah. in to help earthbound when it was mm-hmm. in trouble and um so I, I felt that was my little private tribute to Iwata that I would play through Earthbound again. <laughs> it's funny um, as, uh, that you say that as well, because I have finished Earthbound before. It, uh, ever since I played Melee and I found out who Ness was, I wanted to seek out Earthbound. It, it wasn't available in Europe for the Super Nintendo. So we unfortunately had no way of playing it unless you imported it. Um, I played through it. And then I bought the Wii U version when that came out. 
And then I mm. played through that. And then I actually started a new save file last year for the same reason that you just <laughs> stated, the one as a tribute to Iwata. And then I absolutely adore that game. I have some issues with it now. It's a, a very old game. And it well, is it's, sometimes... a, it's a trad RPG, isn't yes, it? Yes, you know, exactly. Like... It doesn't... It doesn't do anything necessarily in terms of its combat or its systems that are any more interesting than normal RPGs. But the world and the characters are incredible that it's so worth just listening to the music and mm. all those kinds of things. And and I, and then as soon as it came, as soon as we found out from the Nintendo director a month ago that we were getting Super Nintendo games for the, the 3DS and Earthbound would be the first one instantly mm. straight away yeah. straight away i had to get a fan so now i um uh, i was playing a few games before and i was like what do i do between now and dark souls i don't want to start anything so oh i'll just play earthbound again so i'm playing through earthbound again now i'm about five hours in or so and it's it's just such a wonderful game such an incredible game yeah and it's it's got um i mean i th- i think a large part why earthbound is so um so unusual is Ito, Shigesato Itoi's writing. Yeah. Um, I think he games are often badly written, um, even today. And uh, <laughs> Itoi has a real has a real gift for um, understanding the way people talk to each other and yeah. how they often might not talk about something directly, or how you express feelings to somebody you really care about. You know yeah. because. If with the people you care about in your life, you know, you, you don't go around just saying, I love you, I love you all the time. <laughs> I mean, you might do, uh, in which case, more power to you. But um, often affection, love, respect are implicit in the things yes. we say. Um, and Itoi is brilliant at capturing tone in that way. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a world that I find very plausible. Actually, I know that sounds like an odd thing to say about a Super Nintendo isometric uh, role-playing game, um, but it, it seems to me to have roots in the real world that very few other games have managed to um, replicate. And it, it does remind me of being a boy and that that time in my life when I was, you know, a teenager and growing from a boy into a man. Yeah, and so I th- I think. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of saying I want to live in perpetual adolescence. I've just realised. <laughs> <laughs> just I took the question just in terms of a nice place. Yes, um, and that is the nicest place I can think of. Would you want? Would you want the Super Nintendo version of like on it, or maybe the Super Smash Brothers version of on it? Where? Uh-huh. Uh, well, do I get made into a pixel character? If I choose a Super Nintendo, you haven't really thought this one through, Liam, have you? No, it's very unprofessional of me. I did, I had to predict what I, it, it, it would. It would be the Super Nintendo version. Okay, uh, that's yeah, fine for sure. Awesome. Well, that is a answer I can totally get behind. Yeah. And going I mean, I'm on, I'm sorry I didn't say Lordran, but like, who yes. would want to live there? You know, <laughs> you just think shank every time you go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, no one wants to live in Lodron. <laughs> as much as people love that series, no one wants to live in Lodron. <laughs> but speaking of like fantastical game directors, game creators, although Shigesati Itoi isn't really a game creator, as I say, more of like a an inventor of a story. 
Um, we're going to move on to your next game now, which is directed by the one and only Shinji Mikami, and it was developed by Capcom. It was originally released for the GameCube in January of 2005, and later saw releases for the PlayStation 2, the Wii, and a HD re-release for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and coming up, a PlayStation 4 one as well. It receives incredible critical acclaim and is regarded as one of the best action games of all time. It's a game I spoke about in the last episode that features Leon S. Kennedy. It's Resident Evil 4. Rich. Oh, sorry. I thought we were waiting for the music there. No. <laughs> we had we, already didn't listen to music before our lovely Earthbound talk. <laughs> ah, right. I see. Um, so uh, Resident Evil 4 was... Um, a very very important game for me and um, it kind of reawoke and re- reawoke my love of games um after it had been dormant for a year or two uh so i was when i was at university uh towards the end of it um i worked very very hard towards my degree and i kind of i just stopped gaming um and uh I I hadn't really played anything for a year or two, um, and this was quite unusual for me because you know I'd been an obsessive gamer when I was a child and throughout my teenage years. Yeah, and um, I saw Resident Evil Four was coming out, and I I didn't know anything about it, um, but I had a GameCube, and um, I loved Resident Evil. Uh, I didn't even know that Shinji Mikami was directing it, uh, who of course also, as you know, directed the original Resident Evil. Yes. Um, so I ordered it, and it arrived in the post, and I put it in, and I I really hadn't played a game in a year, a year and a half, something like that. And um, I still think to this day Resident Evil 4 might be the best action game I've ever played. Um, it was such a step beyond what anyone else had done at that point, okay. not just in terms of the moment-to-moment action, but... I still think it's the single game with the greatest pacing ever made. Um, it accelerates from the first moment, really. And in the second half, it has a series of climaxes that pile on top of one another that get bigger and bigger and more sensational. And you, ju- every time you're doing one, you're just thinking, how can they top this? And they do. Um, and it never... it. it the game just doesn't disappoint you in any way. As soon as I finished it, I went back and played it again. At the time, my girlfriend threatened to dump me um, because I started playing it so much. She was going, <laughs> you're, you're ignoring me. Um, I'd start coming home at lunchtime to play it. And um, I, I just became, I really did become obsessed with it. Uh, and part of that was that there was so much uh, mechanical depth to it and what you could do yeah so um at the start you know you realize that you can shoot them in the head um and that's going to slow them down then you realize you can kick them when they're stunned then you realize you can shoot them in the leg and they'll go down on their knees and you can suplex them then you realize you have a brief window of invincibility when leon's executing those moves then you realize it has an area of effect you know and it, it layers up um these aspects of the combat system that Resident Evil had never really had before. You know, Resident Evil was, I I guess you could call it an action series before that, but we didn't really play it for the combat. It was a very Um, static experience where you had to... Yeah. Although Resident Evil 4 and Resident Evil feature both having to stop, essentially, Mm -hmm. to do shooting and that kind of thing. It was a very static experience. Okay. You know, I I think 
the idea of making the player uh, stop in position to take aim, I think that's an amazing idea, and more games should do it. Um, because when you're, you know, running around in some games and you're still firing your machine gun perfectly or even a sniper rifle, it's like, I, it seems a bit silly to me. And I, I really love the the risk and reward of, I mean, it, it, in essence, um, Resident Evil 4 uh, is a game about crowds. Um, and I, I actually interviewed uh, Shinji Mikami once and um, asked him about Resident Evil 4. And... Uh, he did say crowds freaked him out, you know, when he was in a big crowd thinking about, you know, what if they suddenly turn for whatever reason on, <laughs> oh, you know, shit. like I'd, I'd, have, I'd have no chance. And it's like, it's obviously an odd thought, but that's why the guy's such a genius designer. Yeah. And um, Resi 4 ha- has this crowd mechanic where um, probably the most well-known section of the game is right at the start when you come across the village yeah. with the burning policeman in the middle. Yeah. And, um, what happens there is the player walks forward and they're kind of swarmed by a crowd of lots of enemies, which are then joined by a chainsaw enemy. And what's terrifying about the chainsaw enemy isn't just that it's a chainsaw enemy that's going to saw your head off. It's that he's behind six or seven people running at you. You know, it's it's hard to even get a clean shot at him. Um, and you've also got to worry about these other people kind of behind you, hitting you in the back. It, it create. I don't think games had done um, that kind of enemy behavior before. I'm not saying it's particularly complex AI or anything like that, because obviously it's not. Yeah, it was um, very simple, but I think it was the spatial design of it. Like you were in a, you were in an area, and if you Especially in that moment, if you backed yourself into a corner, it was very easy for you to get stuck mm-hmm. with the chainsaw mm-hmm. guy. And then if you tried to go into an open area and to you know start shooting him, because he took a lot of damage as well. Yeah, he he was and- a hard guy to go down. You could have enemies coming behind you to attack you, and you all and because you couldn't shoot and strafe or anything you had to stay static and then you were quickly trying to get aim, and then you were looking left and right and seeing what was around you. It was understandably mm. that mob mentality of being attacked by that mm. and it also has um uh, something that i think all games should aspire to which is that leon is incredibly capable but he can be killed quite easily and i always think that's an amazing combination because you are always afraid of what you're facing in that game you're always conscious that it it can take you down relatively quickly but at the same time, you know, you know what Leon can do. You know, like he is really Superman, basically. Um, if you get swarmed, you're in real trouble. But if you're able to kind of master crowd control, I guess you could put it, they can't put a finger on him. Yeah. You know, it's like they're, they're, and obviously the vast majority of people are somewhere in between, you know, like playing well for the most part and occasionally getting kind of beat down. Um and another thing about it is that it has amazing set pieces. And I'm generally not a fan of set piece game design um, because I often feel that games are weaker for it. And uh, like Devil's Third, I would say, is a great recent example of this. Did you play Devil's Third? I avoided that like the plague. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, was very were, poor were, and I did you not. You were wise to avoid it. I did not want to. to I did not I want to play it. that. <laughs> But I played it because, of course, it's um, made by Tomonobu Itagaki. Yes. Um, and Teen, I Teen thought, Ninja's well, former head. 
Yes, sorry, I should have explained. Yes. Um, <laughs> and obviously he's a fantastic designer, fantastic action game designer. So I thought there must be something here. Uh, but it's not a very good game and it has tons of set pieces, all uh. of which are pretty bad. And you're thinking, how much development time did that cost you? You know, to put in that shitty mounted gun sequence. Um, and they're all different in Devil's Third as well. Anyway, I think in general that's what happens when you do set pieces in games. I think it's true for games like Uncharted. I think the set pieces in Uncharted are pretty bad as well. Okay, um, well that was what I was going to sort of ask you next. Like when people think of set pieces in games, especially now, straight mm. straight to Uncharted, straight to Uncharted. But you know, yeah. critically, it reviews very well. Oh yeah, but the, you know those critics are idiots. <laughs> it's like there's there's no. We we are it's, recording, Rich. We, we do. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't care. I mean, Un- Uncharted is a dead end for game design, and it's uh, you know it's not bad. It's not a bad experience. Like it's reasonably pleasurable to play okay. it through. But for me, Uncharted is a seven out of ten game. Um, it's it really doesn't have much interesting to it. I yeah. think The Last of Us was much much better. But again, it's held back by just being, I don't know, I think, I think the days of that super linear, super guided, handholdy experience, and I do think those games are quite handholdy. You know, they, they don't really, um, the thing that they don't have that I would say a game like Resident Evil 4 does have is any degree of expressiveness for the player. Um, you can learn to fight with Leon in the way you want to fight, because he has so many options and he has so many guns. And in fact, the game makes you choose a bit of a leveling path because you don't have enough money to upgrade all of your guns. And obviously, the guns you do upgrade, you want them to be really good. So you want to upgrade them multiple times. So you yeah. end up investing quite a lot. In... So I didn't use the mind thrower for years, which is incredible. One of the greatest weapons in the game. Um, and anyway, what what you end up finding with resident evil 4 i mean i this must be the game i've completed more than any other game and I, I, it, when the i same say is, it actually is the same case for me as i explained in the last episode i've completed that game i think about 15 times yeah i i would say about the same i'd say 15 to 20 times and yeah like if i said that about another game i might be exaggerating um i can't i can't, evil, I can't even think of a game in my mind that apart from maybe super mario world or something that would be maybe easily digestible yeah. to play again, but even coming close, of, even coming close to that number. But isn't part of the reason we enjoy playing through it again and again and again, this level of expressiveness that allows the player and how they confront these weird situations you come up against, not necessarily the bosses, but the fights can play out in so many different ways. And I find when you get these games like Uncharted, um, to be honest, like you like, if I'm going to play an Uncharted, I don't think I'll ever play another Uncharted in my life. But if I do, I'll turn down the difficulty because I don't find I love difficult games, but I don't find the difficulty in Uncharted interesting at all. Um, it doesn't seem to have the same variety in terms of gameplay like Resident yeah. Evil Four. I I have a love hate relationship with Uncharted. I think in terms of like story and how it looks and it's gorgeous. And I agree with maybe playing it on the lower difficulty just to experience the story and the set pieces almost like a movie. Cause the gameplay bits are, there's no, 
variety at all it's just bullets flying across the screen and you know using an ak mm. or like whereas in resident evil as you explained you have the these layers that you keep adding and and even when you complete the game it's one of those old school games that give you stuff after you've finished to yeah, go again yeah, you get the yeah. chicago typewriter you get all these different things and there is reasons to go back and if you take the first section as an example with the chainsaw guy and the mob it's like Running through that with a pistol in comparison to running through that with maybe a Chicago typewriter or running through that with a TMP, very different experiences. I can't believe you used the Chicago typewriter. Maybe. What a cheap son of a bitch. I was, I was 14. <laughs> I was 14. That game, so many ways. But what was the cheapest was running through with the TMP because you could just shoot everyone's knees yeah. and they died. But yeah, um... it offered that variety that many games fail to realize make action games special. Well, it's all well and good having you know shooting gameplay that is tight and you know your bullets go where they are meant to go and like uncharted characters are bullet sponges they require a lot of lots of bullets so you're just firing away and you're firing it and in resident evil some characters are bullet sponges some characters aren't but even normal enemies unless you get them in the head or you shoot them in the knee and crack them in the head they are difficult mm. they're difficult to deal with which means you have to think about how you're going to play which does well, there's get also lost. something about the Ganados seem a bit more humanoid than um, the zombies ever did. Yeah. Sorry, we did kind of turn that into a bit of a uncharted slagging <laughs> session, uh, which was not my intention. No. Um, but I, I do think it's uh, worth just returning very briefly to what started us on the uncharted path, which yes. is how good the set pieces are. Um, so when you, when I say set pieces in terms of Resident Evil Four, they're they're basically the bosses. Um, yes, and it has an amazing series of bosses that escalate in not just difficulty but spectacle, and they all ask for something very, very different from the player. I think, um, and they introduce a lot of them have, you know, like I, I'm trying to remember the name of that lake monster. Um, but yeah, basically, I know, a lot of yeah. them are are just their own sections and you have to learn basically a new skill and use that to take down that boss. And then the game goes on and it never revisits it. You know, it's like, this is your challenge now. And once you've done it, it's happy. It's like, yeah, we've done that idea. We've squeezed everything we could out of it. Yeah. On we go. It, do it doesn't feel the need to repeat itself. Um, okay. And it, it amps up um, the puzzle. It actually amps up the puzzle side of it as well. Um in a slightly different way than people think, uh, I believe, where the later puzzles are more stuff like um, when you're fighting, is it, does he call him Cousin X? You know the thing I'm talking about, that horrible scorpion monster in the cage? Yes, um, the, the... It, Cousin It or something. No, yeah, that's the Adam's they all, they all like They all have like strange, <laughs> almost incestuous yeah. redneck type names. But that thing, like the whole reason that fight is so amazing is that it sets you against this terrifying thing you have no idea how to kill and then it puts you in a maze you know <laughs> it literally puts you in a maze in a giant cage suspended above a deadly drop and you have to run through each section of the cage work your way out and before that bit of it collapses and before this fucking giant thing kills you um and like yeah, people are often critical of like uh, the puzzles in 
Resident Evil, Resident Evil 4. Um, and I think they kind of misunderstand them, actually. Like, the puzzles in those games are not getting the eyeball and holding it up to the retinal scanner. Like, obviously, that is not the puzzle. The puzzle is moments like that where you're put in a labyrinth with a deadly thing chasing you and you have to work out under pressure where to go, how to escape. Yes. Like, the rest of it is just gating um, to me. But there you are. And we haven't mentioned mercenaries either. Um, yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the part of the game that's going to keep you going in the mm. wonderful world of Earthbound. So mercenaries <laughs> is something I didn't particularly at the time play. Actually, it's funny how I sort of played mercenaries because I loved the single player game so much and I was a silly, stupid child. I didn't sort of really get into it too much until after I'd actually played the 3DS game. Mm. And then I went back and I played. Oh, you mean the, the dedicated 3DS? Yes, the dedicated game. It wasn't very yeah. big, but it was really fun. And then I, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you've got both these modes in Resident Evil 4 and Resident Evil 5. So I went back and I played those modes like on the Wii version of uh, Resident Evil 4 and then on Resident Evil 5. So that's when I got into that. But when I originally played the game, I didn't actually get into Mercenaries too much. Oh, well, I, I, I was the opposite. I, I, I really got into it. Um, and it, I think it speaks quite well towards how good a combat system Resident Evil 4 had. Yeah. Um, because Mercenaries is basically uh, an arena mode. Um, yes. You spawn in an arena, you have, I think it's two minutes. Uh, you have two minutes to kill as many enemies as possible, and they keep on spawning from various locations. And all of these arenas are repurposed maps from the main game. Um, within that time, you can get time bonuses. Uh, you can also get combos by killing lots of them together in a row. Um, and these, this combination of factors basically leads to five-minute-long drag-out fights where you're not, you're not as cautious as you would be in the main game because all you're trying to do is go for a high score. Yeah. Like, if you die, yeah, it's a bummer, but it's not like playing the main game and dying. Um, it's very reminiscent so of Japanese score attack arcade games that are yeah, still in yeah. the arcades today. It's very and much I, I, exactly the same. I think that really demonstrates the strength of Resident Evil, that it can support a score attack game like that. And it ended up... Um, I, I became really good at Resident Evil. It's still probably the game I'm best at is Resi 4. And it's just because <laughs> for months and months and months, all I did was play Mercenaries and play through the game again. And... Um, learn how to manipulate this environment it created um i i can't imagine i'd ever get bored of it um i played it again last year uh i play it probably twice every year i'd say um <laughs> are you, gonna, are you gonna like, play are you gonna play the playstation 4 or xbox one hd re-release i already have oh yeah <laughs> um wow <laughs> oh hold on is, is this a different one um, it not it's got an not, HD re-release last year, didn't it? Uh, was it a HD re-release or was it just a, a PlayStation Three? Re- I'm not sure because Resident Evil Six was just released, wasn't it? I've, I've played it. I've played it in HD. I've, oh, I've okay. played it in HD on the yeah, PC and on on PS3. PlayStation Three. Yeah. Well, the, there's a yeah. PlayStation Four port coming. I think of the PlayStation Three HD I, release I or maybe the PC one because Resident Evil Six was re-released last week. So it's it's going backwards. It's releasing six, then five, and then four. It was strange. I yeah, I 
um, instantly, I think the Leon campaign in Resi 6 is great. That, that game gets uh, slagged off quite a lot, um, but I think they did a really good job with uh, Leon's campaign. Uh, sorry, I lost my, my thread <laughs> well, I of think, thought. I think we should probably move on, considering... Yeah, yeah. Can we... I just pop, to, pop yeah. to the loo quickly? Yes, you can. Sorry. We will pause it, and then we will move on to the next game. All right. <laughs> awesome. Be back in a minute. Bye-bye. Okay. So next on your list, Rich, the next game, where we spoke about Resident Evil for so long and action combat and that kind of thing, but now we're not going to talk about anything like that. Instead, we're moving on to the RTS Juggernaut for PC that was developed and published by Blizzard Entertainment, and it was released on July 27th of 2010, which is amazing to think it was released over believe it. almost six years ago. Yes, it's incredible. And it's since received two expansions, Heart of the Swarm and, most recently, Legacy of the Void. It's rece- it received favorable reviews on release and is one of the highest rated RTS games of all time with a large esports scene behind it. And it follows the story of the Terran soldier, Jim Rayner. It's StarCraft II. <laughs> Well, I, I don't follow the story of Terran Soldier Jim Rayner, I have to say. <laughs> One thing Blizzard are not good at, in my opinion, is stories. Um, I've I've never really been into, you know, their lore, uh, I have to say, um, with StarCraft. it's Like, I think they're brilliant at doing um, visually appealing characters. And yes. I, bigger ideas for the armies and stuff. Um, and certainly in StarCraft... Uh, the basic idea of the universe is that there's the Terrans who are like humans. They're basically the American Marines. Yeah. Um, there's the Zerg, which are um, kind of swarming biological alien mass. Lots of uh, low-cost units that are expendable, basically. Yeah. And then there's the Protoss, who are like the psychic aliens who yes. are very boring. Um, Essentially, if you've ever played Warhammer 40,000... Terrans are the Ultramarines yeah. and the Space Marines. The Zerg are the Tyranids, or Tyranids, or however you say that. And then the Protoss are the Eldar. It's a, almost yeah. exactly the same. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And when you look at Warcraft as well, it's even more incredible that Blizzard, you know, somehow have managed to avoid getting sued by Games Workshop. <laughs> it's too late now, but uh, there you are. Um, anyway, yeah, I uh, I really love uh, strategy games in general. Um and uh, I've been playing them for a long time, and I'd, I'd missed the original StarCraft. I, I knew what it was, um, but at the time, the original StarCraft was a thing I didn't really play on PC. Um, and when StarCraft Two came out, 
I wasn't that interested in it. And I went around a mate's house who had it and I saw yeah. it and I, it just blew me away instantly. Like the the way that your base builds. So StarCraft has a kind of isometric uh, perspective, um, although you can, you know, rotate the camera. Yeah. Um, and uh, I appreciate for anyone who knows what StarCraft is, this next minute or two is going to be a bit boring, but I'll just explain how it works. You basically <laughs> build... You basically build a base, um, and in that base, you will have certain structures dedicated to making your base better in the sense of allowing it to build more things. Yes. And you'll also have production buildings, which you will get units out of. Um, and the balance of StarCraft is in mining uh, resources and minerals and turning that into an army as efficiently as possible, but also working out what your opponent's doing and making sure that your army is suited to take on their army. Um, so there's people often um, say there's uh, an element of paper, rock, scissors to StarCraft. And that is true, but it, it, it's a little bit too simple. Um, units do counter other units, but you know, you're not going to have an army just made up of siege tanks. You always have an army made up of five or six different units. So yeah. it's always like you know, it's not really paper versus rock. It's like paper, scissors, rock, and a bit more paper versus <laughs> loads of scissors. Um, and uh, what really, uh, what really grabbed me about StarCraft Two, I think, is that um, there's no other multiplayer experience that is quite as uh, intense on a one-on-one -on -one level. Um, when you play a game of StarCraft. Uh, it can take anywhere from five minutes to an hour. I've had games lasting longer than an hour, actually. Yeah. And uh, it's just you and this other person um, facing off against each other, trying to work out what the other one is doing. And um, it's a very, very intense game. Uh, there's a lot of micromanagement in it, as well as the fighting itself. Just running your base is like a full-time job. Um, and when you play most online games like if we're playing a shooter and we see each other um we'll see each other for maybe a second and then either i'll headshot you or you'll headshot me and we're dead uh and there was something about the way that starcraft 2 asked for a a bigger comparison you know it's like when you get beat in starcraft 2 you really do feel the other guy deserved it um and when you win Conversely, you really feel like you earned it. Um, yeah. And I've I've never found. Um, I mean, I know mobas do this now. They certainly seem to have filled this niche. Uh, but I I found the online side of StarCraft so compelling that I I really got into the game and I started um, I started practicing, which I'd never done with a game before. You know, okay. I'd never. Um, I mean, I'd played lots of online games before um i do have a kind of competitive mindset i guess yeah. um, but i'd never like i don't care about losing you know like uh until it came to starcraft 2 and then because you're putting half an hour an hour into them you know you you do these little training drills and you're like okay what's my what's my build and what if he does this i'm gonna do this like you actually yeah. plan your strategies before you're in the game was and it was it a, was it a lot of watching day nine videos and timing build orders and all that kind of I, thing I, 
Yeah, I did. I did watch quite a bit of Day Nine. I actually, um, I also kind of got into esports through it. Um, okay. Because I, uh, I mean, I know there's StarCraft stuff in the West now, but when StarCraft Two first started, it was still largely South Korea, and you could subscribe to GSL, which uh, was a Korean TV station uh, that would let you stream uh, the StarCraft Pro League. And that was presented by Tasteless and Artosis. Yes. Uh, two very two big West. StarCraft two commentators. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're even more famous now. Um, at that time, they were only really known within the StarCraft community, I'd say. Now they're much bigger personalities. Um, I mean, I didn't know who they were. I just knew they were, you know, two Westerners who could actually explain this stuff. <laughs> um, so I started getting um, in, kind of invested in the culture of starcraft 2 i started hanging out on team liquid a lot um which is a big uh starcraft focused website um swapping strategies with people i had a couple of friends at uh, future publishing where i worked at the time who were also into starcraft and we'd have like um we had secret g docs where we'd like write down strategies and what to build and when um <laughs> and it, it, it was a really interesting experience because up until that point, most of the strategy games I'd played didn't have much of a multiplayer component. You know, when you were playing, like, Command & Conquer or something, um, it's actually a relatively easy game, and a lot of the pleasure in it comes from building the units and then watching them go off and smash, you know, yeah. whatever Nod's built. Um, and this was a completely new way to play strategy for me and I appreciate other people had been doing this for you know a decade beforehand um, I took Starcraft 2 seriously in a way that I hadn't with a game before and I, I was still having enormous fun playing it yeah. um, and I did become decent at it you know yeah. like I mean I wasn't going to be giving the pros any sleepless nights uh, <laughs> how, how but... far did you get on the ladder because Starcraft is uh, the competitive note uh, I don't remember if it's changed I, but I... it it was a ladder system, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I never, um, I never hit diamond. That was always my, my dream was okay. to hit diamond. Uh, but I uh, platinum was the highest I got near that's, the top. That's of really good. League. That's really good. It's it's, it's okay. Um, but I, I'll tell you an interesting thing, which is, uh, you mentioned that part of the swarm and legacy of the void, which I'm not really sure whether it's accurate to call them expansions or whatnot, but um. They were other versions of StarCraft II that came out later, and the one that I was really into was Wings of Liberty, the first one. Yeah. Um, and when I went back to Legacy of the Void <clears throat> recently, uh, which was released uh, August last year, something like that. Yes. Maybe a, maybe a month or two later. Uh, it, it it had all gone, you know. Like I I was I was getting stomped by people, and. I was thinking, wow, you know, I, I remember being pretty good at this game and it hasn't changed. Uh, but obviously, just the fact that I haven't practiced and I haven't been into it uh, means I'm getting stomped. And there, there was this moment where I was kind of looking over the precipice going, you know, am I going to take this from these noobs? Let's get back <laughs> to the way we were. And I was just like, no, I can't. You know, I've, I've, done, I've done my StarCraft time. Um, but I think the reason, uh, I th let's for the first time reference the desert island concept. Um, with, with StarCraft 2, there was always a limit to um, 
how much you could practice and train. Uh, and I think a desert island would just be the perfect scenario to um, go back. And it's one of those games I think you could never master. You know, no matter how much you played it, you would never be able to master it. You could only ever get better. Yeah. Um, well, on a desert island, well, in Earthbound, you could practice every day and maybe finally hit diamond. Finally get there. Yeah, yeah. The dream. Um and also, uh, it has kind of undercover. It has one of the most incredible modding communities going um, because Blizzard uh, incorporated it as part of the game. I think it's now called the StarCraft Arcade or something in the latest version. Um, and they let people build games using the StarCraft engine, StarCraft assets, and then dis- distribute it through the game client. Okay. And you end up playing all sorts of crazy shit. Um, I played MOBAs on there. I played RPGs. I played action games. I've played uh, like card-based arena battlers, um, and it's it's really really interesting because the fundamentals of that game are so solid. You know the units. You know what they do. They work together really well. They complement each other. They confront each other really really well. So you get all these kind of amateur game designers who have all the pieces to make a game and you can make any sort of game with it. I mean, famously, uh, Heroes of the Storm, which is Blizzard's current MOBA, began as a StarCraft II mod. Um, Blizzard themselves began building Heroes of the Storm to show what the StarCraft II mod tools could do. Okay. And they made a full game out of it. And that still runs in the StarCraft II engine, Heroes of the Storm. Um, and that that is a pretty game. That is a very yeah, nice it's game. Gorgeous. The character models it's are gorgeous. gorgeous. The environments are gorgeous. It's a really fun game as well. Very different from standard MOBAs because the map has a rotation yeah. and each has MOBA different fans, objectives. MOBA fans don't like me for this, but I actually prefer Hots to Dota and LOL. I think it's much more fun. <laughs> there was a time. Um, there was a time actually last year where because I used to play a lot of League of Legends, I never got into Dota. Dota is too complicated for me. I am very much a simple League of Legends man. But when yeah. I started playing Heroes of the Storm, what I learned from League of Legends and what was an intermediary between Dota was Heroes of the Storm. So like I would play like uh, <clears throat> Stitches because I played mm. a character called Thresh in League of Legends. So I'd be swinging my hook around and all this kind of nonsense and essentially just helping my team get to objectives. And it was a lot simple and it was a really nice game. I really much enjoyed it, but it's it is very pretty and a very fully fleshed out game, very good. Well, I think Blizzard's amazing at uh doing art styles that are very scalable. Um all of their games look amazing and when you actually look at it I think what Blizzard are most amazing at is effects. Um, the visual, the sound effects they use, and kind of minor things in the way the screen moves um, just make anything look good running on anything. Yeah. Um, and I think there's actually probably less grunt, uh, a lot less grunt in Heroes of the Storm than there is in something like Dota. Uh, but to, to me, it looks better. And I know the Dota <laughs> fans will all be... You know, throwing things at their phone now. It's, that, that metaphor doesn't really work anymore. You know, you used to talk about people throwing stuff at the radio, but yeah, I, I listen to podcasts on my iPhone. So I, I guess really it would be like pulling their headphones out very quickly, like and just pulling their headphones out, maybe. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to a very 
similar game in terms of esports now. This is almost the esports section. So we're going to move on to another juggernaut of esports. Well, one of the top three StarCraft, the next game, and League of Legends and Dota. So let's listen to some music yeah. and go into the next game. So the next game on your list, Rich, is another competitive game, and it doesn't really have a single-player campaign or anything. It's a lot more competitive in no, its focus. single players for noobs. <laughs> it's developed by Valve and Hidden Path Entertainment and was released for PC on Steam in August 21st, 2012. It's the competitive shooter sequel to one of the biggest PC hits ever, Counter-Strike Source. It was also released on consoles for the Xbox 360 mm. and PS3 alongside the PC release. It's one of the biggest esports titles worldwide, only being rivaled by League of Legends, really, in terms of broadcast numbers, and it's continually one of the highest played games on Steam every day. It's Counter-Strike Global Offensive. I guess uh, I should say that kind of stands in for, you know, I've been playing Counter-Strike for a long time. Um, Okay. So Global Offensive is just like the latest, and in my opinion, the greatest version of it, but it's really not that different from... The original Counter-Strike, like part of, um, I think part of what Valve have done with Counter-Strike is acknowledge that they got the design pretty much spot on first time around. Um, and obviously Counter-Strike is also standing in for, there are lots of other shooters that are important to me in a competitive sense. But uh, okay. when you only have eight games, they have to kind of go out. So like Halo 2, I have a real soft spot for, but Counter-Strike um, has something no other shooter does, which is the economy. Um, and this, uh, again, when I'm when I was talking about StarCraft Two and um, this sense that you're you're not just in the moment to moment engagement with a player, you're playing a larger game against them, so that the victory or the loss is that much more devastating. Um, and in Counter Strike, uh, each round you accumulate money by killing other players and either winning or losing the round. Um, And so this leads to an in-game economy over multiple rounds. Uh, Each game of Counter-Strike is the best of 30. So it's the first team to win 16 rounds wins. Um, When you start, there's the pistol round. Uh, Each team just has pistols and you have $800, which you can use to buy armor or a grenade or something. Um, and obviously, as you get more and more money, you can start buying assault rifles, sniper rifles, machine guns, whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so this gives it a kind of... Um, it's not just the strategy of the guns. It's not just, you know, whether 
we meet each other and you win that fight or I win that fight. It means that in a match of Counter-Strike, there's a bigger thing going on. And it really forces teamwork in a way that a lot of other shooters don't. Because um, in Counter-Strike, the, the golden rule is that a headshot with almost any weapon will kill you. Uh, the only exception to that would be if you had a pistol and you shot someone from a distance and they had head armor on or something and the M4A1 for the counter-terrorist doesn't do an instant headshot. But generally, if you hit someone in the head, they're going to die. Um, <laughs> and if like you in have, real life. <laughs> and if you have the AWP, which is the sniper rifle AWP, <clears throat> that will one-shot kill anyone anywhere in the body, um, apart from the legs. If you shoot them in the legs, they just lose like almost all of their health. But if you shoot them anywhere else, they're dead. So it's, it's a very unforgiving game uh, in that sense. The flip side of that being that <clears throat> you can take down three or four people in an instant if your aim is good enough. Yeah. Um, so th there's this balance in Counter-Strike of extreme skill, and precision yeah but on the other hand it's all about tactics and strategy and you really can beat another team that's better than you if your team is a better team you know yes. if they work together more if you execute strategies rather than just running into a bomb site um so another thing, just to explain quickly, and again, I know most people probably know this, in <laughs> Counter-Strike, uh, there are two bomb sites in the typical game mode. There are other game modes, but the standard game mode, there are two bomb sites. There are five counter-terrorists, five terrorists. The terrorists have to plant a bomb on one of the sites uh, and let it explode. The counter-terrorists have to either kill all the terrorists before they do that or defuse the bomb. Um, and either team can win the round by killing all the other team. Um, and so what this what this gives Counter-Strike and I don't think Capture the Flag or you know these other kind of standard game modes you get in competitive shooters come even close to replicating it is this almost sports-like level of strategy and I think that's why it's such a good eSport I think that's why of all the shooters Counter-Strike has become the one that is the biggest eSport because you can see a larger pattern emerging over the course of the game. Yeah. Like when a team loses a pistol round, there's a big question. Are they going to save, which is what you should do? That is good tactics. Like you should give up the second round if you lose the pistol round. And then you'll have enough money in the third round or even the fourth round. You know, some pro teams will give away two rounds. They'll go 3-0 down because they want, to invest everything in a round where they're going to come back and they know they're going to have top-of-the-range equipment. And then if they lose that round, you're like, wow, the game's over. They're 4-0 down, guys. Um, <laughs> but if they come back to 3-1, you're like, oh, the game's basically level now because that other team is going to have to, uh, you know, not buy stuff for a round or two. Okay. And then, of course, you get unexpected tactics within this. You get, like, a team will lose a pistol round but they still have a bit of money and they know the other team is expecting them to just give up the next round and come out with their pistols. So they buy machine guns and they sit somewhere waiting in ambush and jump out on the other team and like, oh, they've unexpectedly drawn level 1-1. One, one. This is sensational. <laughs> um, 
And it, it, it does give it this tactical layer that I don't think many other shooters have. Um, the fact that it is also just such a superb shooter uh, yeah. to, in, in the hands. Uh, what, what is unique about Counter-Strike, I would say, well, it's not unique, but um, because a lot of other games have copied it now. But um, one of the special parts of how Counter-Strike works is the recoil on the guns. Um, if you fire a gun, uh, the first bullet generally is going to go where you're aiming. And after that, you're going to be dealing with recoil. So okay. the way that you should be shooting, um, and I say this is the way you should be doing it, should because be of, course, <laughs> of, of course in the game, you know, you just panic when you see somebody like, oh, ah. un- unloading an AK <laughs> into the ceiling. Um, but like when you see the pros play, like they'll see somebody and it'll be a tap. They'll just yeah. tap on their head, and it'll be one shot, maybe two shots, something like that. Uh, when I actually people... know, I know very little about Counter Strike, and it's not something I actually ever got into um, mm. over the years. But I have a friend who, at my last job, he was incredibly talented at Counter Strike. He was—I forget what the ranking system is—but he was very, very high, and he had, he had like, and he, watching him play, he would just his mouse sensitivity would be so high, or and mm-hmm. he would just he would just i don't even know how he would do it he would just see things that i couldn't even process and he would have already killed them and yeah, it yeah, was yeah. incredible to watch i've got a couple of mates like that and it's um so it's awful to say this really but like sometimes they're on steam and they're like oh rich come and have a game with us and it's like i don't really want to because <laughs> they're they're like they're unbelievable and yeah one of the things in counter-strike is that when you die you get a stream of your teammates so you watch your teammates playing the rest of the round and you can cycle between them yeah you obviously can't look at the enemy team for obvious reasons um and when i'm playing with them and i see just the way they move around the levels is different to how i move yeah um and the way they aim the way they watch corners stuff like that another side of counter-strike we haven't mentioned yet is that the maps are so brilliant and you learn a lot about the maps and a lot of it is playing the maps as well you know so you will learn as a counter-terrorist where the terrorists are likely to come in you'll be pre-aiming at a certain spot sometimes you'll get information saying they're coming your way there's three of them and you know the three are coming you know when that shout's happened and you know it takes about five seconds for them to reach where you are. So after five seconds, you just open fire and you haven't seen anyone and you get a double kill. And that's something to me that hasn't been replicated in any other shooter. Uh, I mean, it, it could be, obviously. Yeah. I imagine Rainbow Six Siege has an element of that. But in terms of the... the oh, that just there's so many layers of overarching strategy to how Counter-Strike works. Um, I don't think I understand a fraction of them, you know. <laughs> but what I do is enough to make me absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I also find the community quite funny. Um, it, it is, you know, games like this and StarCraft as well, you, you, you read a lot about them or I read a lot about them. Yeah. Um, what I've actually and, found, uh, uh, specifically to Counter-Strike, uh, I used to go to uh, Insomnia Gaming Festival, which is like a big LAN um, mm. f- festival with competitive gaming, and it's all centered around not really playing more traditional single-player games, but definitely competitive games like Dota, League of Legends, Counter-Strike. And what I found that most Counter-Strike players are quite 
the, especially the ones who take it competitively, are the kind of lad type guys, mm. people who maybe once in a blue moon played FIFA and Call of Duty and sort of got good at those games and then were like, oh, I'm looking for a new challenge. And then their mates were like, come play Counter-Strike. And then because it's so competitive and they can they can really... Yeah, you definitely get people who just play Counter-Strike. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. For sure. Yeah, There are people I've played with that like have just been playing Counter-Strike for 15 years, you know? Yeah. Like they just don't see the need for another video game. It's just kind of like... <laughs> I mean, I love it, but, you know, that's a bit too far for me. Um, I, I think I've run out of things to say about Counter-Strike. I'm sorry, I'm, <laughs> it's I'm probably ending good because these we conversations pro- terribly. <laughs> well, to be fair, we started the podcast wondering if you'd be able to articulate yourself. I can't even do it myself. But you have spoken quite eloquently about all of these games so far that we really oh, are yeah. pushing time. Yeah. So we're only halfway through, so we should probably press on to your next game anyway. All right. <laughs> so we're going to move on to your next game, which again is a complete juxtaposition to the next. Um, so let's listen to some wonderful music. Before we move on to your next game, Rich, we have the question of the week, which is a okay. deserted island slash gaming question that works in tandem together to appeal to this podcast. So I put out a tweet from the show to ask uh, listeners of the show if they have a question for my guest this week. And so we have Michael, who is at Welsh Boy Mick on Twitter. And his question is, if you were going to have a pet or animal from gaming to keep you company, what would you choose? So a few weeks ago, we had what character would you choose? Um, And it was Mr. Keith Stewart from The Guardian, and he chose Bayonetta to keep him company. Yes. (laughs) All right. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, it it was only for one hour a week. So it wasn't like a... Companion per se. Yes. For breakfast. <laughs> she is like nine foot tall. <laughs> but if you could choose like an animal or pet, uh, let's say like maybe an anthropomorphic type would be okay. Hmm. Because most video yeah, game quite, animal characters are anthropomorphic. There are quite a few I'm thinking of already. I mean, you could have Isun from Akami because that's basically just Kamiya. Like, you'd basically just be having Cameo on your desert island with you. <laughs> A very, very small version of Cameo. Yeah. <laughs> I always... Uh, did you get that impression? I, I just felt like he was Hideki Cameo. Like, that was that was his role. Well, in he the was game, always... Was it, well, they were always sort of pushing the player to move on or, like, to do things in a kind of bossy way, which kind of seems like what Cameo would be like. 
He'd be like, hey, come on, why aren't you doing this faster? Or like, come on, you should be better, and that kind of thing. It does seem like his personality a little bit. Um, in terms of actual pets, there are quite a few dogs I like. Um, I love the dog in Fable 2. Okay. Uh, which obviously it changes um, throughout the game depending on what kind of a character you are. So at the start, you get it as a puppy. And I think you can, I think you can choose like basic stuff, like the color of its fur or something at the start. And then, yeah. depending on how your character kind of evolves over the course of the game, um, the dog does it with you. So, by the end of my run through Fable Two, my guy was basically a kind of massive meaty barbarian. My dog had just turned into this scar-ridden monster that uh, absolutely <laughs> rinsed anything. There's also the dog from. Uh, Dead, uh, what's it called? Dead to Rights. Did you ever play that on 360? Oh, that that shooter that you could you could you could be the dog, couldn't you? You could well, like the, mind switch between the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the um the great thing was you could um just point at an enemy and it would rip its crotch out, <laughs> just spin up, and take it out. And I guess you know I'd like Diamond Dog for similar reasons. Um, okay. Or Diamond Wolf. Uh oh, but if I have to choose one. If I have to choose one, oh, I mean, it's, it's, I think I'd probably take a son because he can talk. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it'd be quite nice to have a, a pet that could chat to you, you know, whereas all these other dogs, like there's nobody else in the island for me to tell them to rip the scrotum off. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like the dead to rights dog's potential would be wasted. The fable dog, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd just waste away and go crazy. So it would probably reflect that. Probably not be a very nice animal. True. You'd probably uh, have to end up eating it as well at some point. Yeah. And, yeah, diamond dog, I mean, he looks amazing. uh, But it doesn't really have personality to speak of. Oh, there's there's aggro, though, from Shadow of the Colossus. There is. But would you you need aggro on... Does well, no, but I'm 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 thinking in terms of um, aggro is one of the few animals that I would say has a personality, um, in video games. Yes. Uh, so he doesn't quite respond to the controls as uh, precisely as you might expect. Um, certainly, if you'd the horse experience I had in video games before that was um a pona, um, yeah. which I'm sure is the same for everyone, and a pona just. Re- acts like Link whereas uh, Agro you're controlling Wander obviously and you're controlling the reins so when you try and pull Agro is it a he or a she? I'm not quite sure Um, I I think it's a he uh, he doesn't quite respond immediately you know he does turn a little bit and when he reacts against you sometimes and like you do get the sense that Agro is a an actual animal with its own existence that just happens to be your companion rather than all of these dogs I'm mentioning, which just follow <laughs> around slavish. They're very and, loyal. I really yeah, does seem to have his sort of... Without any training are somehow amazing at, you know, <laughs> interpreting finger points. So then uh, if you had to choose Ishin or Agro? Oh, it's got to be Ishan. I've got to have Kamiya there with me. Okay. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, he'd probably block me after a day or two. But <laughs> he'd probably <laughs> fuck off and just leave me. And be like, I'm not talking to this dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go with this one. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so we're gonna move on to your next game now, which was developed and published by Sega. It was directed by game designer Yu Suzuki, and it was released for the Dreamcast in December 1999 in Japan, and then a year later in December 2000 for Europe. It play, it plays, <coughs> play, it takes the role of the revenge-seeking Ryo Hazuki as he investigates his father's murder, and you basically explore a beautiful, wonderful 3D world. It is Shenmue. Yeah, um, and I, uh, this is this is slightly cheating because. One of the games I was going to um, put in that didn't make it was Space Harrier. But Space Harrier is in Shenmue. It's in the arcade. Yes. Do you say Shenmue or Shenmue? I'm never sure. I say Shenmue, but... Sh- I tend to say Shenmue. Shen- hmm. Shenmue. I'm g- I would have to... I'm gonna- it's funny because now I live in Japan, I would look at it in a very katakano way, which is the way j- Japanese people write foreign words mm. or we translate japanese words into english so the katakana is shenmue shenmue so okay shenmue so we're gonna say really shenmue not. yeah shenmue um, <clears throat> so yeah first thing to say is that uh a key part of shenmue is the arcade uh there's an arcade in yokosuka the game takes place and it is kind of interesting as well that um you mentioned that rio is you know revenge seeking for his father's death which obviously is the plot of the game um, but Shenmue really doesn't have much to do with that. Um, why? Why it's an amazing experience is it's a, it's a completely different concept of an open world. Um, when when we think of open worlds, we think of stuff like Grand Theft Auto, uh, Red Dead, The Witcher, whatever. And yeah. the, you know, not to slag these games off, but they are. That's a particular style of open world. Shenmue goes for um, density. It goes for trying to, the town is Yokosuka, um, and it tries to recreate this town in incredible detail. Um, I'd never seen a game environment like it, uh, and I still haven't, really. Um, I mean, obviously, technology has progressed a lot in the 15, oh, geez, 17 years since <laughs> Shenmue came out. Um, but in terms of the ambition for what, they had to do and Shenmue is not a perfect game um they got remarkably close because that place still feels to me like more of a place and I'm almost thinking now um if you the earlier question about Earthbound if I hadn't picked Shenmue I think Yokosuka is probably what I would have chosen but I didn't because you know I knew this was coming um Did you did you know um, there's a really interesting talk uh, Suzuki gave at GDC last year where he um, spoke about how they'd recreated the weather in Yokosuka? No, I by... did not. So the game's set in um, 1984 or something, I think. And they went back to um, get all the local newspapers. Oh, yes, yeah. I actually have heard this, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the weather in Shenmue, which obviously, you know, I had no idea about at the time was perfectly recreating those three months in Yokosuka. Yeah, I they think took they gave, all they, the weather data for that time and they replicated it by each day because yeah. Shenmue works on a calendar mm-hmm. where each day passes and you have time. Um, yeah. And it was one of the first games to also do that. But it yeah, perfectly yeah. recreates the weather for that year and for those months. I had read an article about it, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, th I think what's interesting about that is not the not just that fact itself, but what it says about the game's wider direction and what they were trying to do. Um, because one of the things, um, one of the games I often compare it to actually is Majora's Mask, um, which has Clock Town and uh, takes place over three days. And when the the characters in Clock Town um, have their own schedule over these three days and you obviously learn as you're going through the game how to interrupt that how to make their lives better if you like um and Shenmue kind of does this on a grander scale um because it has the town it has various important characters in it whose routines are worked out really <laughs> incredibly um but also anyone in the town has something to do there are you know just generic NPCs you don't necessarily talk to. Yeah. But there are a huge, huge amount of NPCs you do. And it's one of the only games I've played where you get this sense of it being a living place because people are going to work. And, you know, people go to certain places when they want to chill out after work. Um, if you're looking, you know, for Liam Edwards at a certain time of the day, mm -hmm. it might be better to go to the pub than to go to his house. You know, Absolutely. and the fact the <laughs> fact that the fact that the game reflects that um, was something that was new to me at the time, and you do see it increasingly more. But I don't think anyone's achieved it with quite the density that uh, they did in Yokosuka. Mm. The other side of it is that it has um, this really gamey side to it, which is in the arcade where you can um, collect capsule toys and uh, I think it's in the first one it's Hang On and Space Harrier yes. and there are a couple of other games as well um, but for me when I was young um, I used to go to the arcades all the time I was obsessed with the arcades this was when I was very young um, and the game that was always seemed magical to me was Space Harrier um, that was the one cabinet I could never resist. And a lot of the time, you know, because I didn't really have much money, you know, when I was like seven or eight and becoming obsessed with the arcades, I think I got a pound or a pound 50 a week from my dad in pocket money. So I didn't, I didn't really have much money. Um, but I loved the arcades so much. I would go there and I would uh, play the 10 pence machines, yeah. which were stuff like um, Ghosts and Goblins, uh, Final Fight, you know, the 80s classics. Yeah. Uh, and most of the Capcom, like, like very line yeah, yeah. of arcade Whereas machines. something like Space Harrier, because it had the cabinet, that'd be like 20 pence. Um, so you, you like playing on Space Harrier was a, a bigger decision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the fact that Shenmue had Space Harrier, which is just such an amazing game. I, it's probably my favorite arcade game um, in it. And in the arcade, as one of the big attractions in Rio's life in the mid-80s, just struck me as very true. And, you know, the fact that the full game's in there is also amazing. Um, and, I, I mean, I won't spend too long going on about the arcade and how you collect capsule toys because it makes yeah. it sound quite sad, really. But it is very <laughs> impulsive. It's um, so... It's, it's, it's incredible because it is a game that's 17 years old now. But in Japan, still... To this day, 
many, many, many students, many, many children, even young adults, go to the arcade after school, after work, and they go and they collect capsule toys. They're called gachapon machines. Mm. And they play these arcade games like Space Harrier. A lot of them have like card battle games now and that kind of thing. Mm. And Shenmue perfectly recreates that. It's absolutely spot on with its like replication of a Japanese arcade. Yeah, yeah. And even... um even when you go beyond the kind of the diverting side of Shenmue, one one of the weirdest things about it is getting a job. Um, so there there comes this stage in the game where um, I I can't I think you need to get money to buy a boat ticket, um, and this is near. Well, you need money for something. Anyway. Okay, and uh, you get a job as a forklift driver, and it's it's kind of incredible because it's it's often called boring uh, that section of the game and it looks boring it looks boring but it's actually not boring it's quite fun to do and that was amazing to me because that is some of the most talented game designers of their generation looking at drudge work basically yeah what should be a boring job and thinking how can we make this fun for a player to do and like the forklift uh, truck has an acceleration speed that I don't imagine any forklift truck in the universe has. It kind of jerks <laughs> forwards, and you kind of you can bang into the crates, and you know if your uh, if your lift bit isn't at the right height, and you pull the lift bit down and lift up the box, and then you jerk off in another direction. Oh, that sounded wrong, um, <laughs> and it, it does actually make it quite amusing and quite diverting. Yeah. Um, I, just as a job, and you got this experience of. Um, you know, you start off the game uh, getting money from your mother. Uh, every day, Ryu wakes up and there's an envelope on the table from his mother with some money, which is what you spend on capsule toys, obviously. Um, <laughs> and then towards the end of the game, you've actually become like self-sufficient. You're actually like, you know, I don't need your money, mum. Yeah, I can, I can have all the gacha I want. Um, <clears throat> I can and, play Space Harry until the morning. I can yeah, do what yeah. I want. <laughs> And it, it actually had quite a lot of um, game sections that came into it. Like um, it has a bike sequence near the end. It has uh, lots of fighting in it. And it was based on the Virtua Fighter uh, engine. It initially began as a Virtua Fighter game. I take it you knew that. I did, um, yeah. It was going to be based around Akira's story. And, you know, thank God they moved away from that. <laughs> um, but also it had this... Um, as well as the purely gamey elements, it had, uh, and I'm not really sure what to call this, but like it had the cat that you took care of in your yeah. house, um, and you'd end up spending a lot of time just chilling in your house. Just playing the with the cat, yeah. You, yeah, you could buy like cat treats and cat toys in the yeah. town, and like, see, now, now I'm almost wishing I took this cat to the desert. <laughs> But um, I, I, I don't. Guess I, don't some... I don't think Ishan would let you pet him, <laughs> yeah. nor anything. <laughs> no, I was going to make a rude joke there, but I'm staying away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um I, I guess in summary, like the thing about Shenmue it, to me is that it's such a diverting game. Um, and th this is why I say when we're talking about it as a revenge fantasy, uh. It's 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 not really about that. You know, the reason people love Shenmue isn't that. It's that it has that thing that I think we all understand from our own lives where um, you have certain priorities 
And then life is a process of trying to not get distracted from those priorities yeah. because there are so many other diverting things to do. Um, and in Shenmue, yeah, this you do have this big priority of like, you know, this guy killed my dad. But the town is so interesting. There's so much to do. And it very rarely disappoints you. Like when you think something looks interesting and you try to do something with it, um, usually the game has thought of it and will respond to you in some way. Like I'm not saying it has infinite combinations or possibilities or anything. It's no, just but that it's incredibly you've... detailed and uh, it's yeah. incredibly reactive to you I still remember, as a player. Yeah, the first game where an NPC called me an idiot because um, I was on the docks and uh, this homeless guy asked me to get him a coffee and uh, there was a vending machine next to him. Um, you know, one of these vending machines that's everywhere in Japan. Yes, and I did, <laughs> my I did, savior I did, on a Monday morning. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I, at that time, I didn't know what a Suntory boss was. Uh, <laughs> so I went to the machine and um, it didn't say coffee on it. It just had pictures of the cans. And so I didn't know which one it was and I bought him the wrong one. Um, <laughs> oh no, I think that he was asking for green tea and I bought him a coffee. Okay. So anyway, he wanted I got, I got, it, I got it wrong coffee. and I gave him it. Yeah. I gave him it. And he took the can off me and just looked at me. And he went, the youth of today is pretty stupid, huh? <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I was just affronted uh, and kind of amazed, you know, that like the game just didn't care. It was just like, you idiot. Like, the guy didn't <laughs> want that. And, you know, the faces as well. They were kind of expressive in a way that, I don't know. They they still look amazing to me, whereas games like Ellie Noir I'm not so into. Um, okay. You know, it's obviously much less impressive technologically, but I think they really uh, they really made everyone look quite characterful, and you were just interested in it. It was a great place to be. They um, had memorable faces as well, and the game itself obviously it gets a bad rap for the voice acting and that kind of thing, but it's almost endearing to it. They're normal people. They don't have special talented voice actors behind them they're very normal people with normal voices who mm. all have their own sort of character yeah and loads of them are grumpy yes you know lo like lots, lots of, of japanese people <laughs> uh, yeah it's kind of i don't know it really does feel like a a world um it's, i i can't think of another game like it even now fantastic well we're going to move on to your next game which is a very mixed bag in terms of how this game was received and it's from japan as well and has the kind of quirkiness that shenmue displays in some areas <laughs> so let's listen to some music and go straight into it
So this game was developed by the now defunct Clover Studio and published by Capcom. It's the second game on your list of eight today, Rich, that was directed by Shinji Mikami. It was released for the PlayStation 2 in Japan back in September 2006, with Western releases coming a year later. It's gained quite the cult status with people like you and me, and it's been praised for its combat and its combo system and its incredibly strange humor. It received incredibly mixed reviews on release, with some critics really enjoying it and some not enjoying it, with the infamous IGN review that gave it a 2 out of 10. It's God Mm. Hand. And said the camera didn't work as well. I was actually, um, I was at the launch event or the announcement event for Vanquish, um, which was the game Shinji Mikami directed for Platinum Games. Which and, is also um, superb. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and Mikami got up on the stage and the first thing he did was call out the IGN guy who was there. He's <laughs> like, oh, there's IGN here. And some poor guy put up his uh, hand and he went, oh, thanks for the God Hand review. <laughs> so, but the, yeah, that review was moronic because it said the camera didn't work, whereas the camera is perfectly engineered for the style of game it is. And yes. the style of game it is is a little unusual because um, I thought I had to have a, a kind of fighting game on here because I love games like Bayonet and Ninja Gaiden, Devil May Cry, etc. And uh, I knew I could probably only have one. And to me... Um, God Hand's probably the most special of them, but it's also the most unusual um, because in a lot of these games, they focus around area attacks uh, where you can hit multiple enemies at once. And God Hand, to me, the game that it was always riffing off, I thought, was Final Fight, or that style of Double Dragon um, yeah. 2D side-scrolling beat-em-up um, where there are quite a few enemies on screen but you're only fighting one at a time it's definitely uh one-on-one fist to fist exactly exactly i think he i think mikami was trying to um bring that style of game into 3d because the 3d beat up had gone a different path yeah um and all it's also worth mentioning by the way it wasn't just mikami uh this was the resident evil 4 team that basically made god hand um or certainly some important members of it and what God Hand does, I, again, it's very hard. There's no comparison for it, really. Um, it takes away a lot of the barriers of the fighting genre, um, such as inputs. Um, so in God Hand, there are hundreds of different moves you can acquire, but you assemble them in the pause menu in a certain order, any yep. order you want. <laughs> and then you just mash the square button and Jean, the hero will execute whatever combo you've lined up and obviously you've got a little bit of leeway on the other buttons you can map other moves to them but in general you will pick a signature combo you're like this is my this is my style um and then you don't have any problems actually pulling it off in combat which is very different from a bayonet or a ninja gaiden where half the challenge is actually being able to execute under pressure. Yeah. Um, Godhand doesn't have any of that. Um, it focuses much more on, um, I guess, uh, the right time to attack and dodging. It has an incredible dodge system, um, which is on mapped to the right analog stick, and it lets you backflip, sidestep, or duck. And certain moves can only be dodged certain ways yeah but in general if someone's swinging their fists at your face you can just 
spam duck and Gene will dodge them all and it looks yeah. amazing. And then you can unload a combo. Um, it's a my, very... My, my go-to was always backflip, slide in, unleash combo. I love <laughs> classic it. slide followed by the dragon uppercut. Yep. <laughs> and uh, the amazing drop kick he has. Yeah, he's got so many good moves. I always quite like the pimp hand. Power for when you've got to get your money. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also... Uh, do, you, do you know about the Chihuahua? called yes. Mikami's head. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was... Well, I guess I'd better explain because you obviously know. But yes, please you know, do. Some of the, some of the listeners won't. Uh, Mikami <laughs> famously said that he would uh, commit Harry Kiri by decapitation if Resident Evil 4 was released for a platform other than the GameCube. And obviously Capcom then released please it do. for PS2. Yeah. Um, so there is a chihuahua in god hand called mikami's head that you can bet on <laughs> and never seems to win i have to say uh, but anyway chihuahua racing aside um god hand is very tough on one level um later levels of that game are very difficult yeah um but it also has a sliding difficulty uh thing going on which Again, no other games have really done this, where uh, you start off on level two. There are four possible levels. And as you, if you're hitting enemies a lot and you're yeah. not getting it, it will fill up and you'll go to level three. Yeah, and at yeah. level three, the difficulty of the game increases. The enemies become more aggressive. They start using different moves. They start moving a bit quicker, hitting a bit harder. If you still keep on doing them, um, it moves up to level die. Uh, which I've been up to level die a few times, and you know I have uh, obeyed the command. <laughs> it's all I can it does say. Get difficult. Um, and that is a really, really interesting thing for a game like that to have. Yeah, but because... when 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 you do die, it, it slides the level back down as well. Yeah, it's yeah, a game yeah. That yeah. is reactive to how well you are doing. So if it puts it up to a level where you start to feel a bit challenged, and then overwhelmed it'll be like okay okay and it, it reels it back in a little bit exactly it, it has this uh responsiveness and it's, it's quite interesting because even though you would think four levels isn't really much in the way of subtlety yeah um but it actually makes the game feel much more dynamic than you would imagine because it ends up whenever you're doing really well all of a sudden they're up to level three and then like you'll struggle with level three for a while and you'll like just about grind through and then just as you're about to die it moves back down to level two and you're like oh thank god <laughs> <laughs> and uh you can also uh one of, one of the brilliant things about god hand is how all of the systems it's got going on kind of interact so it has uh special moves in it called the roulette wheel um and again like the combos you can select the kind of attacks you're going to put on the roulette wheel and at any point during combat, you can tap R1 and it'll freeze the game. It doesn't quite freeze it, but it no, slows it, it down. it slows it down to milliseconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from that point, you can cycle through your roulette wheel and choose a particular attack to yeah. set up You know what you want to do next. And at the start, you're just using like the most powerful ones. But as you become more familiar with the game, you start to realize that there are um, setups within the roulette wheels that will allow you <clears throat> maybe not do as much damage straight off the bat, but will yeah. allow you to 
you know get in there and do some serious damage and good players of god hand pretty much use the roulette wheel like all the time mm, and even further than that it brings in resident evil 4's uh context sensitive qte system where when you stun enemies in a particular way you can then grab them and execute particular moves on them and while you're doing these you are invincible to the crowd so it also it shares a lot with resident evil 4 this just not just the developers it has that same dynamic of crowd control where um you can't let enemies get behind you out of your peripheral vision because they will hit you in the back and yep. they have no hesitation about doing that whereas in resident evil 4 it's much more telegraphed they kind of go behind you and you're like oh there's a ganado behind me yeah. or the uh the terrible cultists who go uh <laughs> and then they like it, claw at it, you it's, yeah. it, but anytime you hear that like your gut just oh freezes <laughs> uh, you're like oh i've got to run forwards now <laughs> um but anyway back to god hand it uses a lot of um those dynamics in a similar way it uses crowd control it, it gives the player uh, the ability to go invincible at certain points and all of this is to the end of learning how to move Gene in a certain way to take on these challenges that just seem impossible at the first. And they get crazier and crazier and crazier as the game goes on. Um, so when you start off, you might just think it's a fairly standard generic beat-em-up. And I actually think this is one of the mistakes they made with God Hand. I think the first level is a bit of a joke. Um, did you ever play... Uh, oh. Uh, Rising Gun, is it? The PlayStation 1 game with a samurai cowboy. No, I know of it. Rising Zan? Rising uh, yeah. Zan? I'm, I'm, I'm just going to uh, quickly Google that. I think it's Rising <laughs> Zan. Uh, the first level of God Hand is the first level of Rising Zan. Oh, okay. They remade, yeah, they remade the Rising Zan backdrops. So that whole town in God Hand, the first area is the first level of Rising Zen. Um, and that was obviously a little bit of a tribute and a little bit of an in-joke. Yeah. Um, but also I think it was meant to lull players into a false sense of security. It was like, oh, this is a kind of generic beat-em-up with you know guys with mohawks and stuff. And then pretty quickly uh, you start fighting you know, uh, giant apes, uh, power rangers, demons... Uh, guitar heroes. <laughs> they, I, it is pretty crazy. Yeah, it, it really goes off the wall, and um, the, it has some great enemies. It has some amazing boss fights, and then it has Devil Hand, um, who is the opposite of the God Hand. And uh, I think, um, in terms of that's always been a great setup for fighting games is the doppelganger kind of character so dante and virgil bayonetta yeah. and john um the polar and, opposite to the main character yeah and devil hand is just god hand but evil and it has the most i hope the music you chose was devil may sly by the way which is the theme <laughs> for devil hand because i'll, that ma I'll make a note of that <laughs> you fight you fight devil hand three times and each time it just amps it up and they are probably my favorite fights ever in fighting games and i love fighting games um they've just never been bettered in terms of the intensity of it and what devil hand can do versus what you can do uh he 
does have everything you've got, including the power of the God Hand. He can unleash the Devil Hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a mirror match against the AI with the breaks off, which is what happens when you go into it with a level three, um, the, so, I, I've never so played cool. anything like it. Yeah. Yeah. Just utterly, utterly incredible. And <laughs> the game, the game doesn't, um, it doesn't waste time. And I think this is another reason it failed commercially. It doesn't waste time with extraneous stuff. So one of the reasons it got slagged off a lot in the reviews is that the environments aren't amazing. No, they're they kind of like pretty, pretty awful, pretty, pretty basic, um, pretty boxy and stuff like that. And that's just because they spent all the development time making characters for you to fight. Yeah. You know, like the whole game is a fighting game and all of the resource has gone into getting that fighting engine as good as it could be. Um, perhaps at the expense of some of the other stuff around it. But at the same time, it means structurally it's perfect as well because the thing God Hand has, which so many of these games don't, is a boxing ring in, in Arena where after you've played through the game, you can go there and have any fight you want from the game. Um, it, it's got loads and loads of challenges you can go through and get like three stars on or whatever. So basically, if there's a character you particularly like fighting against, uh, you can just go and fight them in the boxing ring at any time yeah. once you've completed the game once. Um, and in a game like this, that to me is the most important end game feature. Like, because, you know, you just don't want to play through games no again you just and again. especially in a game where it's all about fighting you just want to fight the exactly. characters that you enjoy fighting yeah yeah you just want to master the system and very few games have had a system worth mastering like god hand yeah wow that's fantastic we're gonna to have to move on to your last two games now and they are both epic games in their own right and i'm very interested to hear what you say about your last game but before that we're going to move on to the penultimate game so let's listen to some music So the second to last game that you have on your list today, Rich, is the epic final Konami Kojima game that is Metal Gear Solid 5. And now, I don't say The Phantom Pain because you've kind of cheated and you've said that Ground Zeroes should be included with The Phantom Pain. So, Ground Zeroes was a prologue game that was released a year before The Phantom Pain, and it kind of, it was half tech demo, half gameplay demo, half actual game. And a lot Mm. of people didn't like the fact that it seemed to not have much content, 
They gave you mm. this map and it gave you things to do. Then a lot of people got hours and hours out of it. And yeah. then a year later, we had the Phantom Pain released, which reviewed incredibly well. And it follows the story of Big Boss, who is now Punished Snake. And he leads a mercenary group called the Diamond Dogs. But you want both of them together. So please give me your case as to why they should both be together. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's any secret that towards the end of uh, Metal Gear 5's development time, Konami were in full-on panic mode about how much money they'd spent on it. And uh, I think Ground Zeroes was in a way... I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Ground Zeroes was intended to be the prologue to the Phantom Pain in the sense of being on the Phantom Pain disc. Yeah. You know, um, and I think Konami basically said, you know, we need... We need to sell some Metal Gears this year, so you have to release it as a standalone. <laughs> um, and I I was one of those people that got hours and hours and hours out of it, and I thought it was truly amazing. Um, and people, I don't know, I mean, some people complained about it and said stuff like, it's a demo. And I thought that was so unfair, like uh, to, to the point of just being willfully wrong. Um, for me, Ground Zeroes was exciting for lots of reasons. Um, not just kind of showing you the the leap forward that Kojima Productions had made in terms of AI and stuff, but in terms of um, I talked about Shenmue earlier being a kind of different take on an open world, and I think um, Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain are another different take on an open world. They're not comparable to stuff like Grand Theft Auto or The Witcher or whatever. Um, they are going for density in a different way to Shenmue. Okay. Uh, they're sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. And it, it one of the things is it it works beautifully with the way the series had been evolving up until that point. Um, in terms of they'd invested a lot in Metal Gear Soldiers. Um, they'd invested a lot in the jump from Metal Gear One to Two in making it into a more simulation-y kind of experience. Um, I mean, I realize Metal Gear 2 is not a simulation, but when you compare the guards in it to Metal Gear 1, uh, there's a huge difference in how human they appear. This increased in Metal Gear 3 and 4. Um, you know, their eyesight got better. Uh, they started to exhibit more human behaviors. And the when you come to place them into an open environment, as they did in Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain, um, that makes the place instantly much more interesting than any other kind of enemy because they move in a more intelligent way than yeah. other video game enemies. They work together much, much more intelligently. And they don't forget about you. You know, like um, you do change the nature of a place in Metal Gear just by your presence becoming known. Um, and that to me uh, ties in with Another thing I was saying earlier about the idea of player expressiveness, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, in terms of one of the things I always loved about Metal Gear is uh, just the amount of um, stuff there is in it and how much they always think about how you could use it. You're very, very rarely disappointed in the Metal Gear game when you have an idea because usually they've thought of it first and <laughs> they've incorporated some way it works in the game. And in... Um, it just makes the Phantom Pain and Ground Zeroes incredible. Uh, I hate to use the word sandbox because I think it's overused, but this is one of the games that would actually suit 
being called well maybe toy box is more toy box I, yeah um it's almost and, like you have a, a figure a figurine and you mm. have lots and lots of accessories that go with that figurine and you can just yeah interchange them all the time yeah, I mean, I I have to say I've never bought one of those Kai Arts figurines myself, but they they look pretty good, the snake ones. Yes. Um, and in terms of uh, there's 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 quite a few sides to um why I think these games are so amazing. One of them is that uh, it went against everyone's expectations of what a Metal Gear should be. Um, and I think Kojima has kind of over the Metal Gear series, he has changed with the game, with each entry, in quite a profound way, um, yeah. without losing what's at the core of it. Um, and for me, Metal Gear 5 was another example of that, where I think a lot of the negative reaction to it was based on it not being what people expected. Um, it plays it a lot more straight than previous Metal Gear Solids. It doesn't have these kind of totally crazy boss fights that uh, the previous games in this series had. It doesn't have all these lengthy cutscenes that people hated so much in Metal Gear 4. I, I mean, obviously, it still has elements. I, don't know, I, don't, <laughs> I am one of the minority for that. I actually really enjoyed 4, and I actually like those cutscenes, but... <laughs> oh my god, I was just wishing their fucking helicopter or whatever they're in would crash. Like the, the, the end of every chapter in that game was just terrible to me. Um I, I do kind of, as the years go on, I have more respect for Metal Gear 4 um, because I think I appreciate more what he was trying to do and it was a mission impossible. Um, and you can kind of see he got close to it. Um, but I also think Metal Gear 4 is the reason why Metal Gear 5 is the way it is. I always tell people um, to look at the first level in Metal Gear 4 and look at how much detail is in those environments. Yeah, and, and there are so many time, different pathways as well. How much time an average yeah. player spends in them. Because I've seen people playing Metal Gear 4, I've obviously played through it a couple of times myself, and you you run through them, you know, more or less, you or you crawl through them. But you, the point is you move in a straight line, and Metal Gear 4 is also a game that's constantly pulling you onwards, like it's got a hook through your lip or something, going, you know, next objective, next objective. Yeah. Um, so I feel there was this sense at Kojima Productions that a lot of their work was wasted in that sense. Whereas in an open world, when you create a fantastic setting, a scenario, it's there to be used again. And I think uh, one of the things that the Phantom Pain does very, very well is the side missions. I think the side missions are just amazing. And I had so much fun just dropping off in Afghanistan and hoovering up side missions. Like, I I thought the main game was fantastic as well. Um, but when you just drop down and you're moving around, triggering side missions, and you do six or seven in a row, for me, that was just the dream Metal Gear experience. And... <laughs> One of the things I loved about Peace Walker as well, which is basically a prototype as far as I'm concerned for the Phantom Pain, um, is that it had this kind of um, mission-based structure that meant Peace Walker was totally about stealth gameplay. Um, so in Metal Gear 4, Metal Gear 3, whatever, you're going stealth gameplay, but there's also the set pieces and the cutscenes and stuff. It's constantly pulling you out of what the game is brilliant at, which is you know, stealth against this amazing AI. And I think uh, the Phantom Pain is the best Metal Gear 
because it's got the most Metal Gear. You know, it's got the most of that amazing stealth system at the core um, that you could just go through again and again and again. And, 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 and. The other thing is, I thought, um, you know, I've always found Kojima's themes and ideas incredibly interesting. Um, yeah. Without ever wanting to call him a great writer um, because you know <laughs> some of the scripts are just uh, some parts of the scripts are just appalling um he needs and, to learn not to waffle and he waffles he needs a an editor yeah he's got he's got he's... the jk rowling problem if you look at the harry potter books the first three are really small you know they're really short yeah and then the goblet of fire is like 800 pages and you're like what <laughs> happened there Oh, Harry Potter became a phenomenon. And all of a sudden, <laughs> J.K. Rowling's editors were too scared to tell her, you know, we don't need this chapter. And exactly the same happened with Kojima. You know, because Metal Gear Solid was such a hit and he was given such autonomy by Konami, he's never had, I think, what he could have used, which is someone restraining him or just editing him and cutting bits out. Um, but one of the things, and the reason I wanted Ground Zeroes here, um, is that I think uh, Metal Gear 5 is really... How can I put this? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's like an allegory of real-world politics, but I certainly felt with Ground Zeroes, it was a very striking thing to do to basically present Guantanamo Bay. And um, I, I don't see any other presentations of what Guantanamo is, which is a horrible prison camp. Yeah. Um, and when Metal Gear was, when uh, Ground Zeroes did this, and it kind of made the point uh, very strongly that Snake was an icon and Snake was a hero and a soldier. And to me, the point of doing that was that these things don't exist. You know, Guantanamo might exist, but Big Boss doesn't. Um, and very much the point of Ground Zeroes, I felt, was that this setting exists, but there's no hero coming to save these people. Um, and it, it really, um, it really hit me in a way that uh, I wouldn't say any of his previous games had, even though you know Metal Gear Three was quite powerful on geopolitics and the Cuban Missile Crisis and how you know the, the real politic might mean someone like the boss dying yeah um, it's very so it's very quite... funny because three and maybe peace walker but three and five are very on the nose on topic with situations that are happening mm. or have happened whereas one and two kind of their own deal they're very cliche mm -hmm. almost in that sort of way and then four it just kind of goes crazy but yeah. three and five are very almost grounded in their political iconic mm. topic. Yeah, yeah. I think. and also there's, um, I mean, as well as uh, the the Guantanamo comparison with Ground Zeroes, there there was a very simple message to the Phantom Pain, which is that uh, both Afghanistan and Zaire are just being used as, um, you know, they're being used as bases for proxy wars. And the actual people who live there are either dead or being exploited or never seen. Yeah. And the people who are doing it all are the US and the Russians and these various other shadowy factions. And it's like, <laughs> obviously it is a, a military-industrial fantasy story, 
but it's also completely true. Yeah. You know, like it, it is, it may be mirroring, you know, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or presenting that, but, you know, its target is obviously the state of Afghanistan now, which is entirely down to Western intervention. And I, I, I admire the fact that Kojima will go for that stuff um, because I think a lot of AAA games are, I mean, I'm not saying your game has to be political. I'm not saying your game has to have a message. I just think it's interesting that Kojima is the only big budget game director who's really interested in confronting the world we live in it's quite, in a direct way. It's quite incredible that you say that because having experienced living in Japan, Japan is almost cut off from the rest of the world. It does display mm. on news stuff like Syria and ISIS, but Japan as a nation really only thinks of themselves. Whereas British news and American news will always be world news in a sense, less mm. localized within their culture or stuff. Whereas Japan is always localized. It's always about Japan. It has to be about Japan. It's not about Syria. It's not about ISIS. It's about Japan, which is strange because many mm. Japanese people don't talk about stuff like that. Like we would as Westerners, we would talk about, Oh my God, have you heard about what's happened to like James Foley and the unfortunate people who have died mm under the capture of ISIS, whereas Japanese people don't have conversations about that. So it's very is... funny for someone like Kojima, who has grown up in Japan, to take an interest in that and then make it the forefront of his storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. But like this this has been a big part of Metal Gear's appeal from the very start. Uh, well, from Metal Gear Solid, where... And even the original Metal Gear, I'd say, on MSX, um, where it is... It is a Japanese game, but it's a Japanese game that I think has been made with American sensibilities, oh, and yes, it goes absolutely. it goes for the uh, the archetype of the American action hero in order to send that up in a certain respect. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's always had this engagement with the wider world, and then at the same time, it brings in the very Japanese stuff like the otaku and the cyborg ninjas. <laughs> And the mechs, of course, like yes, it's got mechs. it's got mechs at the center, but around that is um yeah this this weird mix of Americana. I th I think Kojima is absolutely fascinating, and he's obviously you know whatever the wider point about Japan might be, he's obviously someone who's very engaged with the world and yes, absolutely thinks a lot about. It. I mean, um, did you did you ever read the design document for Metal Gear Two? No, I haven't read the design oh, document. Now that now. that's incredible. I'll send you a link to it after this. I yes, referenced it in the Metal Gear thing, I two thing I wrote for Eurogamer. Originally, he was going to call that game Metal Gear Three, and uh, the whole question of why it was Metal Gear Solid Three rather than Two was going to be like answered over the course of the game. Um, and he was concepting uh, terrorist attacks on the United States. Uh, and this was just before 9-11, obviously. Um, okay. Uh, when was Metal Gear 2? I think it was 2001, wasn't it? Uh, around that Around that time. It was around that time. I think it was 2003. Anyway, Kojima, was, um, Kojima for Metal Gear 2 was basically planning uh, for the big enemy to be the American government. Um, he was planning to uh, start this big terrorist incident that obviously Snake and Raiden would get involved with. Raiden was there from the start. Uh, in the planning and uh, over the course of this game 
uh, I think my reading of this design document is you would realize that the terrorists are just kind of uh, shallow reactors, whereas the people really controlling the event are the US government, even though they're ostensibly the targets and they are the ones benefiting from it. Which is kind of like, you know, when you look at how the Bush administration used 9-11, pretty fucking prescient. It's, you know, (laughs) like Kojima does see the world in an interesting way. And he sees stuff that I think is accurate. Um, It's just unfortunate that he's not a great writer of dialogue. Yeah. um, Because his ideas are absolutely tremendous. And if you look at what Metal Gear 2 was basically saying, which is that we as a society are going to negatively be affected by information overload um it's going to make people stupider like what's happening now (laughs) you know absolutely yeah that game was 2001 like the internet as a mainstream thing was relatively new and kojima saw that immediately you know and it's it's one of the reasons that people like me have such respect for him whereas the people who are not so into him can just look at the schlocky dialogue and you know, like female characters with their breasts out and dismiss him. And that stuff frustrates me too. Like I, quiet, I thought was just fucking terrible. I mean, it's just like, he just wanted to pair on Stephanie Justin. And I, uh, it really bugged me that that was in the game because I've got no interest in that and I've got no interest in defending it, but I love the game so much. I often end up, having to comment on quiet or something it's hard it's it's one of those things and it's like everything else in gaming it's like you really want to praise something but then there's always that thing Mm. that needs to be addressed now and especially when it comes to japanese developers it's becoming just gross isn't it it's like and he he did something like that in metal gear 4 as well where after you beat I'm sure you remember after you beat each of the Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, you could you like... Can then photograph them. Yeah, yeah, you can uh, stare like, at their bodies and stuff like that. It's bizarre. you like, oof. It's a dead body as well, which makes it even weirder. And, <laughs> and then Drebin tells you the story about each one's horrible, oh, horrible, horrible, <laughs> gr- like, growth. Yeah, and yeah. then you're like, oh, well, I've got about 15 selfies of them, so it's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's really strange. But well, I think as a game Metal Gear Solid 5 is incredible and it's a fitting swan song for Kojima and that series I don't think he needs to make a game like Metal Gear again but definitely take the gameplay ideas that he had in that and push it into his new Kojima Productions adventure so that's I agree and just before we move on I think uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending for anyone. Because yeah, please don't, because I I still you haven't. should <laughs> you should find out for yourself. But I think he ended that series in the most conceptually perfect way. Um, the the ending really is something. Yes, for anyone who doesn't know, I was speaking with Rich about this, and he berated me for not having finished it yet. So that is my next yeah, task. Berating's a little unkind. <laughs> I gently encouraged you. <laughs> yes, he definitely did encourage me in. You should too. So <laughs> so we're going to move on to your final game, which I think is the game anyone who knows you is the most interested to hear from you about this game. Although you have written many articles about this series and you are currently playing the latest in the series as well. So um, indeed. we're going to move on to your next game and we're going to listen to some fantastic music. 
So, Mr. Richard Stanton. Hello. The final <laughs> game in mm. your Earthbound world with your pet, Hideki Kamiya, <laughs> is the wonderful fantasy action RPG darkness developed by From Software and directed by Hidetaki Miyazaki. The sequel to the relatively unknown on release PS3 title Demon Souls. And it originally released for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 in October of 2011 with a PC port of the game coming later. It took the world with it by storm with its tagline, Prepare to Die, and the game's challenging combat and gameplay appealed to a whole range of players. And since then, it's received two sequels and a spin-off title last year, with Dark Souls 3 being the latest in the series, with a Japanese release last week and a Western release set for April 12th. It's mm-hmm. Dark Souls. Indeed, and not Bloodborne, you no, were surprised to which see. Which I was, I was very surprised, surprised to see, yeah. Well, it's, um, you know... I probably prefer the combat in Bloodborne, I have to say. Um, and I'm equally as in love with Bloodborne as I ever was with Dark Souls. But Dark Souls um, was a game... I bounced off Demon Souls. I got Demon Souls when it came out, and um, I bounced off it. I didn't really get it. Uh, and I never went back. Well, I did go back later, obviously, but um, <laughs> Dark Souls wasn't on my radar. And a f- official PlayStation magazine in the United Kingdom asked me if I wanted to review it. I said yes. Um, and I had Dark Souls about a month before it came out. And okay. um, I had to work my way through it and there was nothing else there was there was nowhere i could go for help these days if you are stuck in dark souls you can just google it obviously um if you want anything explained to you you can just google it um and dark souls is a really obscure world when you first enter it it's very confusing it's very difficult to get your bearings um and for the first few days i really couldn't work out what was going on and I very (laughs) gradually started to get a feel for it and I started to realize that I needed to be paying more attention to stuff I suddenly realized this wasn't a game like most other games Um, I started to read item descriptions which usually I wouldn't really bother with because I suddenly twigged that they were telling me um, little snippets about the world and I started to realize if I looked at particular enemies armor or where they were positioned or where I found certain items then I could extrapolate conclusions from that and <clears throat> this uh, this realization that you were kind of half a warrior and half a detective uh, changed the game at once for me um almost immediately i became obsessed with it and uh i started uh i i was just playing it all day all night making giant flowcharts trying to work out what was going on um <laughs> I, I i gave it a glowing review in the end and and i kept on playing it uh and I don't think there's been another game apart from obviously Bloodborne um, 
that has the same level of sophistication in terms of how it delivers its world and narrative to its players. And part of that, it uses techniques that other games either don't use or don't use as well, but it also uses a lot of them in concert. So with Dark Souls, pretty much everything in that world is also information about that world. And there's very, very little in the game that is not explained eventually or you know there does seem like there is an explanation for it so even mechanics um like dying like resurrecting at a bonfire like using humanity all of those things you could just in another game would just be a mechanic um i think whereas in dark souls uh they feed into the nature of the world and why the world is the way it is and why your character is the way they are and why the gods are terrified of your character. And all of this stuff you won't realize until, you know, multiple playthroughs and piecing together a lot of parts of the puzzle. Um, Watching Epic Man one, Bro on YouTube. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, ENB is absolutely fantastic and he's a really, really nice guy as well. Um One of the best kinds of people, I think, because he's not just very smart, but he's a very... Uh, he's a very intellectually giving person. He shares. Um, anyway, uh, so one of the other things about Dark Souls, which I just think is phenomenal, and it very rarely gets credit for this, is that an, a player can play it through as a normal video game, and they'll never twig that there's anything else going on. You can play that game through, get to Anorlondo, get the Lord Vessel from Gwyn, uh, Guinevere, do what she says yeah. and go and kill Gwen and link the fire. And you'll be like, I've completed the game. Hooray. <laughs> um, and it, it works like that. You know, like if you look at the structure of it, that is a very typical video game and progression you, and, and you still would get a good experience. The combat would be great. <laughs> exactly. The, still the be a fantastic environments game. are amazing. You would be wondering what the fuck is going on with Starry, but you'd be like, this is beautiful. The enemies look crazy and it was a good challenge. Yeah. Or you can like notice, you know, the fraying at the edges, and you can peel back and start to discover what's beneath. And the thing that is absolutely brilliant about um, what's going on under the surface in Dark Souls is that they put so much effort into it. It's not just like you find out in a note that there might be a conspiracy going on. Like there are whole areas of the game that they don't care if players don't find, you know? The Painted World of Ariamis would be one. Yeah. Um, The uh, Ash Lake would be another. Um, And even the areas you do go through often have optional areas that you might just never find. So in Anor Londo, for example, the giant rotating bridge can be rotated down when you're on it, and you can find Gwendolyn at the bottom guarding Gwyn's tomb which is something I didn't do for, you know, countless playthroughs. Like, it just never <laughs> occurred to me. Because you have to bring the lift up um, to get on it, and then you take it down, and then you go into the main building of Anorlondo. And it just never occurred to me to go down the stairs again at that point. Um, and the, ga- the game is full of... Um, it's full of stuff that it doesn't care if the player misses. And because of that, it's an amazing exploration game. Because um, when you play, a, say, a Ubisoft game or something, you've got a map 
with icons all over the place. You've got arrows guiding you towards stuff. Dark Souls has none of that. It doesn't have a map. Uh, it doesn't have any UI elements that aren't essential. Um, everything you have to learn yourself, you have to learn the layouts, you have to learn where stuff is in relation to one another. Um, and because of that, everything feels important. Um, every, every location you become intimately familiar with, you learn how to get to other places from it. And when you find a new place to go, it's incredibly exciting because you feel like you've discovered it. And the fact that some of these places then unfold into some of the most amazing areas in the game. I mean, the fact that there are, there must be so many players out there who've finished Dark Souls who've never been to the Painted World, you know, or Ash Lake, yeah. you know, and like that blows my mind, you know, because <laughs> Ari Ariamis is probably my favorite area in the game. Um, and it was the first area made for it as well. It was intended as a uh, proof of concept. So they tried to put everything that would be in Dark Souls in, in that. this one area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously they moved on to making the full game. And they were like, well, this doesn't fit. <laughs> so, odd. so, you know, you know what it is in the lore, though? It, it, it is the place where um, the gods put stuff they're afraid of where the gods put stuff they've rejected that they don't want in Lordran, which kind of suits it, you know, as if you consider the developers it to be does, gods. does, in a way. In you're sense. almost like <laughs> a, an escape from that as well. You're a piece that has fallen out of that, and mm. the gods are like, hey, 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 whoa, 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 wait, wait, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, you know, you they're, <clears throat> depending on how you interpret other stuff, there's evidence that you were intended for it as well because um, yeah, exactly. you remember where you find the painted doll, it's back in the Undead Asylum um, in the cell you woke up in at the start of the game and what is outside your room? Some of Gwyn's knights. Yeah. So after you've left the Undead Asylum, two of Gwyn's knights have arrived with the tool required to put you into the painted world. Um, which again is one of those things where can I say that's what happened for definite? No, but it certainly fucking looks like it. Yeah. You know, it's Every, like everything in Dark Souls isn't on the nose. It's always just implied. Mm. It's never a hundred percent telling you outright like it would in other games. Like this is what happened. No, it's more like, huh? One, two, put together three. Ah, you, you have to just assume that you think mm. that's what happened. And then, that's the beauty of it. Everything is implied and you piece things together yourself. Yeah, I, th I think um, the the charm of it is hard to overstate. You know, every, everyone loves a puzzle. And um, the, the, the magic thing about the Dark Souls puzzle is that all the pieces are different. You know, you might get one piece of information from an item description, but you might also uh, look at a piece of architecture or you might look at, you know, the weapons an enemy yeah. is using. Um, or you might simply look at the orientation of one area relative to another. I mean, like, it's obvious what Sen's Fortress was built for, just from its location, you know. And when you get to the top of Sen's Fortress, you see that the road to Anor Londo has been bricked up. 
and that there's no way through to it anymore, which tells you something else about the age of Sen's Fortress relative to Anor Londo and, you know, what's happened in Anor Londo itself, that it literally just doesn't want people coming in. Um, and like you say, there is assumption in it, but as you learn more and more, your assumptions become more informed yeah. and, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly compelling uh, way of telling story, I think. And the idea of reconstructing a world's history while playing an active role in it, I think, is an amazing one for video games. Um, I also think it, you you use the word epic, and I, I I do think it is epic in the truest sense. You know, if you look at um, you know, like the Iliad famously begins in media res, right in the middle of the action, and it's it's kind of the same with Dark Souls. It's like everything of consequence in that world apart from you, has already happened. You know, you've come in and kind of missed the party, you know, maybe not even right in the middle of it so much as towards the end. Yeah. And so you you are kind of an important player in events that have already happened. Um, and that is a chronological structure for a game narrative, I think, works incredibly well. Um, and obviously there are... Um, I mean, to me, this style of storytelling is the best games have managed yet. And when I call it sophisticated, um, I appreciate it's very easy for people to snark at that and say, oh, well, you know, it's a fantasy world with dragons and knights and gods. <laughs> and I, I do have sympathy with that because normally I'm not into fantasy. Okay. You know, like I, I wouldn't say like, I mean, I, I read The Lord of the Rings when I was younger, but that's about it. You know, I don't I don't really... I'm not into wizards and orcs and stuff. Um, but Dark Souls isn't like that at all. And even if it was, the point is not the specifics of Dark Souls world. The point is the sophistication of the techniques Miyazaki uses um, and the number of different techniques he has and the ability to keep these in balance, the ability to have all these different elements feeding into the one story without contradicting each other um, and, in fact, supporting each other to give the player an overall impression of their world. And yeah, Dark Souls, for me, I went back to Demon Souls after I became obsessed with Dark Souls. Yeah. And Demon Souls is obviously amazing, but it doesn't have anything like the level of attention to its narrative. It's very strange. Souls Demon Souls is a lot more of a game, it feels yeah. like, than Dark Souls. Dark Souls is an incredible game in a game way the combat's very good the puzzles are very good but in a storytelling sense they're almost chalk and cheese completely different um mm. and demon souls very much you can see they were like we'll make it a fantasy game we want to make it difficult but we we, we don't quite know what we're doing yet mm. and then and i i think this this um this sophistication of technique it, it kind of um I can't think of many video game stories I really care about, you know, um, and I played a lot of video games. Uh, I, I read literature at university, um, so I guess I've always had an, an affinity for fiction and I've kind of got it elsewhere, you know, from books or movies or whatever. Yeah. And I've never particularly cared about video game plots, you know. Um, maybe... There, I mean, all, there, there are many exceptions. of them, and many of yeah, there are exceptions, but many of them are a means to the end, just yeah. for the game to progress for a reason. 
And Dark Souls is one of the first times I really felt um, there was a game that was... How can how can I put this? It was a game for an adult mind. You know, it was like um, it had something to its story that actually intrigued me and interested me beyond getting to the end and killing Gwyn. I actually became quite interested in the motivations of the characters, why the world turned out the way it did in certain respects. Yeah. Um, and I'm just not into that stuff in most games normally. Like I, people is people sometimes assume i'm really into video game lore and i'm not at all like i'm really into <laughs> any game written by hidetaka miyazaki um it's like having and, a favorite author and you know that author is yeah the best you know, because he suits your taste a lot more and miyazaki is the best like there's there's no comparison between him and someone like kojima because kojima has a much i think kojima's style of storytelling is much more indebted to movies and this is why we get so many cutscenes. And he's not great at dialogue. And Miyazaki. What, what, what about someone like? Dialogue. What about someone like Shigesati Itoi then? Well, Itoi. See, when I was talking about exceptions earlier, I would say the one is Earthbound. Yeah. Um, and you know, like with Final Fantasies and stuff. Like I wouldn't say I don't care about the story. It's just like in terms of. You know, they were very much. They seem like childish things to me. Um, okay. I guess is the way I could put it, and I I realize that'll probably offend some people. And I I don't mean it's childish as in we shouldn't be playing it. I just see Final Fantasy's worlds and scenarios and characters is not very emotionally complex. Even if the story of bad knights, we've got to kill them and save the crystals, can you know feel like a bit of a tug. Um. We were talking about Kojima, Miyazaki, Itoi. and then you asked about Itoi. Itoi. In comparison, yeah. because I mean, you said but the interesting, the, the interesting thing is Itoi is a writer. You know, like yes. Itoi is not a game designer by trade. He happens to have designed three amazing RPGs, but he, <laughs> well, he two, is two, a... two, two, two amazing RPGs. The Earthbound Beginnings, or Mother One, as it's called, is not a very good game. Well, it's, it's one of those ones, again, where like, like if somebody played Earthbound now, um, and they bounced off it, you would have sympathy with them because it's a, even at the time of release, it was a traditional RPG, and the appeal of that game is entirely in the writing and the characters. Yeah. Um, okay. I would say. Um. So yeah, in terms of Etoy, like yeah, he would be an exception, and I'm sure there are other exceptions, but Dark Souls for me and Bloodborne. I would say continues this. I, I'm really sorry. Bloodborne isn't on my island. I really regret it. It's amazing. Um, they 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 marked a a new level of narrative for me in games in terms of how I thought about games and how they could deliver story. And I don't. I know they get a lot of credit. These games. I know they get the bum lick everywhere. Um, but I still think a lot of people don't understand how far ahead of other games they are in terms of i'm not talking about the stories miyazaki comes up with just the techniques they use um and it all revolves around the integrity of the game itself and the integrity of the game world how much it all fits together and how deeply you have concepted it before building a single level i think there's a lot to be learned from those games and it's not about 
you know, other fantasy games learning from it. It's about the whole industry looking at something like Dark Souls and how it achieves its effects. I, I think it's the best game ever. So, <clears throat> talking about learning from Dark Souls, have you yeah. checked out Salt and Sanctuary then? Because that no, no. has almost not been compared to Dark Souls, but is definitely a clone that we're going to start seeing we always see clones we see a good game then we see clones of it it happens with every good game last year lords of the fallen yes lords of the fallen was a third person action combat that was meant to be difficult and challenging i didn't like that game at all just rubbish and it it didn't have the same feel of dark souls or at all but salt and sanctuary is different it's 2D. It's it's been compared to being like Dark Souls and Symphony of the Night, which is a Castlevania game, mm. as one. And although it kind of looks ugly, a lot of people are saying that the combat's really good uh, because it's a bit like Symphony of the Night. And um, but the the feel and the learning from the na- the narrative is very very Dark Souls, and it's not a cheap version of Dark Souls. It's very much its own thing, and definitely has learnt. It's trade from Dark Souls. So are you mm. going to check that out at any time after you finish uh, playing Dark Souls well, 3? Yeah, I mean, I, I am vaguely interested in it because uh, I interviewed James Silva um, years and years and years ago when he was making The Dishwasher, yes. which was an XBLA game, and it won some Microsoft competition. Oh, he used XNA, that's it, I think. The old he, he won game network that used to build yeah. indie games on for Microsoft. So um, anyway, James Silver's quite a nice guy, and the Dishwasher was a great 2D combat game. It was. Um, it was a really good so game. So I have, I have no doubt that seven or eight years later, um, he's capable of producing an even better one. Uh, it's just a question of time at the minute. The one thing I would say about um, the, the competitors, the Floods, is an amazing Miyamoto quote I remember from... Um, the early 90s when uh, he was talking about platformers and how you know mario had led to a lot of platformers with mascots and miyamoto said and quite brilliantly i think that um a lot of people copied nintendo's ideas without ever thinking about why those things were there in the first place and that to me describes lords of lords of the fallen down to a t it copies almost everything about the souls games but there's no sense that the designers behind that thought in any deeper way about why is there a role why is there an equip burden why does our character die why does this happen why does that castle look like that you know, like it's a very shallow game I think lords of the fallen in that respect I did not Um, enjoy that game at all that was junk <laughs> it was. I, I I kicked its face off on rock paper shotgun, and loads of people were moaning about it. They're going, "Oh, this guy hasn't given this game a chance." And I was just thinking, you know, I've played through it. Taste. I'm the one who's played it. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't know. It's uh, not a good game. Go play I'm Dark Souls. If if if, if you're even tempted to play Lords of the Fallen, Dark Souls is exactly the same price or even cheaper. So. Yeah, that. one thing I do wish is uh, you you mentioned that the tagline became prepared to die, and I wish that the uh, I understand why Namco market it the way they do, and more power to them because they're selling a lot of copies, and that's great for Miyazaki. Um, but I I wish it didn't have the reputation for difficulty it does, because 
part of the Dark Souls experience is that um, it, again, allows for player expression in the sense that you can play it in a lot of ways. And the first time I played through it, going back to that terrible review period um, when I was banging my head against the wall, I found <laughs> an eagle shield in Blighttown. You know, a massive, huge shield that like took up half my character's body weight. And I just walked around for the rest of the game with that up in front of me, poking with a spear occasionally, you know, and barely ever got hit. And the game allows you to do that. And that is clearly for players who don't want to get into the more skill-based side of just wearing some underpants and rolling with a greatsword. But I, I admire that about the game. You know, I admire that its systems are so deep that players who aren't very skilled basically and i wasn't very skilled at the start can build a very defensive character and they can go through it defensively and they're not going to die that often because it's very hard for the enemies to hit you um and then obviously you can amp it up and now you know like i'm playing dark souls 3 at the minute you know i just run around two-handing my weapon all the time but that's because I've spent so much time in Dark Souls. You know, that's not because I'm innately amazing at these games you at know, all. I'm you not. know the systems, you know what feels right. I know the system. Yeah, and I am that man who went around with a giant shield and a spear for the first 20 or 30 hours. Yeah. You know, and there's there's no shame in that. Like, like I, I admire that the game allows it, and I would recommend anyone who's scared about the games does it. And I hate the fact that it's sold as this difficult experience that some people won't be able to get over because i think anyone could enjoy it and yeah it kind of annoys me because i i don't think it's very fair to its style of difficulty it so, is a difficult game in a way but you know it's so stated <laughs> it, it's difficult in a sense we have lost this is not an old man game of rant but we have lost that sense of challenge that video games all had. All mm. video games had challenge when it was in the arcades and they had to be quick yeah, and snappy, exactly, and, they but they had to take, take your you money. Off. They had to be hard because they had to take your money. They didn't want you to breeze through the game on like one coin. So they had mm. to be difficult. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, <sighs> you really, you really saw that changing in the PlayStation era. I think, Yes. Which was the death of the arcades, really. Um, and I, I mentioned the arcades earlier, but one of one of the things that I think is, um, and here's my old man rant, uh, one <laughs> of the things that I think is difficult for younger people to understand is um, the arcade dynamic. Because um, when I was young, the consoles I had at home were like a, a ZX Spectrum 48K, a Master System, a NES. And when you had those and you went to the arcades, like, the arcades, it would be like having a PS1 and seeing someone playing a PS4. It would, The difference in the visuals, the sound effects, the whole experience was just so superior in the arcades that there really was this sense that home gaming was second best. Um, certainly to me as a young, shallow boy, um, <laughs> you know, you'd go into the arcade and it was like firework heaven. Um and you know you'd go home to like usually a shitty version of an arcade game. Yes. Like that's what a was port. most popular in those yeah. consoles at the time. They were always um, ports. They were downgraded ports. And uh, I mean the the gradual decline of arcades is another whole story. But in terms of 
difficulty like it's it's not something um i don't i play a lot of difficult games i have to say but it's not something that like i know some people take like pride in that and they're like you know yeah i play difficult games i'm a real man um and for me, it's just a consequence of me loving those types of games. Um, it's funny you say this, actually, because a great example of that is my my girlfriend has just finished Dragon Age Inquisition, and she played mm. it on the easiest difficulty, and it was a breeze. Like It was very mm. easy for her to go through it, and she enjoyed it. So she was like, what, what game should I play next? I was like, well, mm. you like fantasy. Why don't you check out The Witcher 3? Why mm. don't you try it? And she was like, okay, what's it like? I was like, it's fantasy, you know, you get to have conversation trees like you do in uh, Mass Effect and Dragon Age, which you like. And she's like, okay. So she gets it. And then she puts it on the easiest difficulty, which is completely fair. And then it's she's asking me con- constant questions. Like, what, what? why do I have five bits of magic? Why do I need to brew potions? Why do I need to meditate? Why do I need to yeah, yeah, ride yeah. a horse? And these are all things I didn't think about because they're second nature to me as a gamer and the witcher 3 is not mm. a difficult game by any stretch of the imagination i think i I, th- I think she's got taste though all that stuff pissed me off too <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing it but it's not something we struggle with as gamers in no. any way it's second nature it's like brew potions okay that's a little weird but yeah i get it i need potions to make myself buffed and stronger and health potions mm. and whatever and i meditate to regain health and i dodge to do this and i parry to do this but to someone who doesn't play games that often that is challenging it's an overload of information and that is Mm. a lot of gamers today they're coming into games like this and they're like oh god it's so difficult like what the and then you have the other the other side where these gamers who do finish those games like dark souls or they go back and they play like Mega Man 2 and they finish it and like i am i am fucking great and it's a it's a polar opposite between two sides of the demographic that companies who make games are trying to go for so yeah, and I th- I think the the right way to go is always going to be accessibility. I mean, yes. we've, we've kind of come full circle from what we were talking about with Pong and computer space at the start. Exactly. Um, Absolutely perfect. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it is uh, I th- like I enjoy playing um, <clears throat> games like Bayonetta, Ninja Gaiden, etc. on very hard difficulties. But the the reason I enjoy that is that I've been playing those games a long time. And I didn't start on the hardest, you know. I started playing them on normal, and then gradually I became too good for normal, and now I play them on the hardest difficulty setting. But, like, the idea of, like, criticizing someone for playing one of those games on easy, I think, is just insane. You know, like, because I wouldn't be able to play on the levels I do if I hadn't invested, you know, so much time in them beforehand. Yeah, and, like... Who cares fundamentally? Like, all that matters is whether somebody enjoys a game. Like, and what business is it of yours whether they play it on easy or hard? Yeah. Like, really? Who cares? It's nobody. Yeah. Um, well, some people do, but, you know. It's very I'm strange. Not- it's like the Star Fox Zero uh, announcement the other day of, the, uh, you know, a, like an, a very easy mode that makes you kind of invincible. And, you know, all Nintendo right. games like Kirby's <clears throat> Epic Yarn and Yoshi's Woolly World, they have bits where you can be invincible because well, kirby's dreamland was invented as a game that normal people could complete 
Yeah, it was essentially that, that was a the Mario idea game. behind Kirby was, as a yeah, character. It was like a Mario game where players could get through it without having to do complex jumps or timing and that kind of thing, and they could just sort of have yeah. a fun adventure. And Nintendo yeah. have always catered that audience, but there is a group of people who get angry about butts in yeah. Overwatch that then get angry about gamers playing on easy mode. It's it's a strange world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have come you, full circle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could think of an example where it might harm the game's integrity if it was made too easy. But like, I can't actually think of a specific. Well, example. like Dark Souls, and for, for me, example, it's always about that game ha- only has one difficulty when you put the game on, mm-hmm. and, and the, the only way you can turn down that difficulty is by exploring and and giving it a go and getting like the eagle shield and that kind of thing mm. but once you start the game you don't know and you have to deal with it for a little bit before you can mm. get to that point that makes it easier and there are many games yeah. that only have one difficulty so they're yeah. the kind of games that could potentially be compromised in that kind of thing i, th- I think i think so dark souls is certainly unusual in what it expects of the player things like not having a pause function are just kind of unheard of in the yeah. modern era, um, and that I kind of like it. You know, I like I wouldn't like it if every game did it, but I I like the fact that FromSoft has the confidence to be a little bit ballsy and say, <laughs> no, if you're sitting down to play our game, you're playing our game. You know, that's yeah. why it doesn't have a pause function. You know, so that players just can't bring themselves out of that world so easily you know if you want to come out of that world you've just got to quit the game um and i admire that and like it it would be remiss of me if i didn't say that a lot of the effects dark souls achieves and certainly like the like on a very basic level the feeling of achievement in dark souls is predicated on it being a challenge and on you yeah. overcoming that challenge and dark souls so, is one of the best examples of feeling overwhelmed with achievement when you do Mm. something and when yeah the game is hard and when you face against orenstein and smo and it takes you a month to get through that boss fight when Mm. you do it all you want to do is carry on playing the game because you are elated and you feel amazing about what's just happened yeah my favorite boss fight ever that (laughs) it is i was actually going to ask you what your favorite boss fight was orenstein and schmo um, why the music's incredible the music's incredible and it's like it's a classic combination isn't it like a fast thin man and a slow heavy hitting fat yeah man. and the fact that they can i don't know the setting is perfect the fact they can collapse the pillars it's just a great fight you know uh, i actually enjoy it a lot now and obviously i had that period everyone has where like i died to them 30 times or something um and to me to me it felt like like it's i guess it's the climax of dark souls first half um but i think it's good enough to be the final boss fight in any game i i just thought it was perfect couldn't imagine it being better and it was so video gamey as well in the way that um when you get one of them down, the other one becomes the super version. Yeah. Like, I thought that was brilliant because I thought it was like a cheeky nod to the fact that this is the moment where players will either realize that they're being deceived 
or they'll just buy into the idea, oh, this is a video game. This is what video game bosses do. Because, of course, it, you know, the fact of that happening suggests that there's some sort of illusion jiggery-pokery going on, uh, or to me anyway, with Gwendolyn's involvement. But, um, you know, you can read it as just the typical thing video game bosses do. <laughs> <laughs> so it fantastic. works on, on the mechanical level and on the lower level. Well, we'll see soon if Dark Souls 3 can live up to them as well. So hopefully it does have that depth, which brings us on to the end of the show. And the final question, as you know, Rich, <clears throat> of the show, is about what console you would choose. After this epic episode, this massive troll through mm. many games. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, it's, um, been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure listening there's to There's one talk. thing I was unclear about, which is this console that I choose. Do I have to play everything on it? No, you don't have to play everything on it. It's just you have the choice. I mean, you can have these eight games, but you can only have them through proxy, essentially. You can have the console for that one game. But if you had to choose the console that sticks out in your memory, including the back catalogue, because consoles are great and all, but they're only built on the games that you play on them. So if you think back to all the times you played games and the console you have the most memories with, what console would you choose to have on the island? Or in uh, on it? Uh, uh, um, I mean, I'm kind of torn between, you know, I mean, I take it I can't choose PC. No, but, uh, you I, cannot I'm, choose I'm, PC. I'm torn, you know, between my, the little... The little ten-year-old boy inside me wants a Game Boy, um, and I've always, I've always held a candle for the Game Boy and for Gunpa Yokoi. Uh, you, uh, because for anyone who doesn't know, Rich has his own website, and he wrote a fantastic piece, a blog post about Gunpa Yokoi that you should read. It's really, really girl. good. Yeah, it's very, um, very good. Um, yeah, I always, when I think back to being a kid. Like the Game Boy was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Um, I got it for Christmas in '89, I think, and I would have been, I don't know, six, seven, and um, I couldn't believe it existed. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't understand that it was a console that I could swap games out with, you know, because I'd had like those little. Tommy ones beforehand, you know, those terrible LCD yeah, games. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, you see that you'd seen those around, but the idea of an actual console in your hand that you could switch cartridges in and out of, I've, I've never, never had a feeling like it. Um, I couldn't believe the Game Boy existed the first time I saw it. And that feeling is kind of continued, you know, like I, I still have a lot of reverence for the Game Boy and for what it represents philosophically as a piece of engineering as well as just a great piece of hardware you know um i one of the things i really admire about yokoi is that there was this focus on the software and like the the grunt of the hardware wasn't as important as the software it would be able to run um which is why the game boy has such an amazing back catalog um so i get i guess i'll i'll go with my my inner child and i'll have the game boy i'm sorry to leave the playstation 2 out of there i'm very sorry it's not a ds 
because a DS would probably be a better choice, but just for myself, I'm taking the Game Boy. Well, the Game Boy is yours to take with you. So Thank you! <laughs> well, that brings us back to the end of this episode, which has been absolutely incredible. It's been such yeah, a Sorry pleasure. about that, folks. No, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here today, Rich. You are one of the best tweeters of about video games out there and you write some superb articles so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today thank you for appearing it's been a pleasure really enjoyed it so please tell the wonderful audience if they are still here where they can find you and what work they should check out of yours oh uh well you can find me on twitter uh at richstanton.com r-i-c-h-s-t-a-n-t-o-n um just follow me on Twitter. Uh, I, I mean, I can't. I don't really want to tell people to go and read my old articles. It just, <laughs> you should. You just should. I, I will do it for you. If you're going to read any of Rich's articles, definitely read his uh, article recently about Platinum, because Platinum are one of the best studios out there, and it's a fantastic in-depth article about them. And you should definitely read his ongoing epic about the Metal Gear series. And then, obviously, come next week his Dark Souls 3 review. which we'll mm, Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening to this episode. Episode number 11. God, we're into double digits already. It's incredible. So thank you once again for listening. I'm Liam Edwards, and you can follow me at LiamBME on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Final Games Show. And if you'd like to email into the show or for any reason or anything, uh, you can email finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to this while you're already listening to it, but you can find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash Final Games Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes as well. And it would be lovely if you could review or rate the series because then it pushes it up those iTunes charts or whatever the algorithms work at Apple, and then more people listen, and that's kind of cool. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you join us next time. So thank you to Rich. Cheers. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everyone, and we'll see you next time.